Well, hello, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us for the the second. Wow, we're really on a roll now. Uh, the second Mythgard Movie Club, and uh, yeah, we're here. We're talking about the Last Jedi. Um, I don't know what more to say about that other than we've got some announcements here. I think Kat, you were going to go through some of these. Yep. Um, just want to let you guys know. I'm sure you know, but reminding you that um, classes for uh, the spring semester uh, at Signum start on Monday. So if you have not yet registered, please do so ASAP. Just that helps us figure out um, planning for preceptor groups and numbers and that sort of thing. Um, we have two new classes um, that are live, uh, you know, premier classes, literature, film, and technoculture with Chad Andrews and Intro to Germanic Philology 2 with uh, Nelson Goering and Paul Peterson. Um, so those are going to be pretty exciting. They're classes that I think uh, certainly the lit film tech one I would be taking if I was still a student. <laughs> um, and then uh, flex courses, we've got Beowulf through Tolkien, Chaucer to the Potter Saga and Tolkien's Poetry also running. So those are available too. Um, also coming up this weekend on Saturday is TexMoot, the first, uh, you know, moot happening down in Texas. Corey will be there um, and he is traveling there at this very moment, which is why we're taking over the Wednesday time slot for the movie club. So we are grateful to him to get out of the way for that. Um, and then finally, uh, tentatively for January 30th, uh, Tyler Swope will be doing his thesis theater. Um, I don't think an abstract is published yet, so just keep your eyes peeled for that and for confirmation of the day and time. So the first, you know, thesis theater of the semester is coming up and that's very exciting. Yeah. Um, so we actually, so I just noticed we had the next Mythgard Academy too is starting up soon. I know he's got one more week of um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then I don't know if we have a start date yet for the War of the Ring, but that'll be coming up. I think there's usually a week or two between um, those classes. Um, and then uh, we're currently in the registration period for Mythmoot 5. That's five people, not V. Um, but that's crazy, actually, now that I think about it, just how many we've had of those already. Um, and so we're in that uh, we're in that registration period. I think the registration goes through like May, so you've got a little time, but you know, register sooner. It helps with planning. Um, no, Neil, it's not MythMoot TV uh, or V or anything like that. It's MythMoot Five. Um, and announcing brand new, we're the first ones to break it, and Corey will be upset because he didn't get to do it, and we stole his time slot. London Moot, uh, which is happening uh, in April, April twenty first. Um, there's a website and everything all up there. You can actually register for it now, um, as of like yesterday. And so you can check out londonmoot.com to see the details there. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, I'm sure there will be, a, I don't think I'm going to make that one. I am going to be at TechSmoot this weekend, but I won't be able to make the London Moot probably. Um, but that said, speaking of Hitchhiker's Guide, we've got a uh, next movie club coming up in February. And we're going to be doing that one. And we have actually secured Corey. He's agreed to join us. We kind of browbeat him into it. 
Um, we're still working out the rest of that panel. Uh, there may be a few other members who are here tonight who will join us for that. And uh, that'll be fun. I haven't actually, I saw the movie like when it first came out, but I haven't seen it since then. So I'm not sure what we're in for exactly with that one, but uh, it should be good. Um, and then uh, after that, we've got um, near the end of March, we're going to be doing uh, A Wrinkle in Time, which um, I've actually, I've never read the book. I'm planning to read it before I see the movie. Um, and I'm trying to get my daughter to read it with me. So hopefully we'll uh, be able to do that. And we'll be talking about that. I know, um, I think Kat, you're looking at that. And we'll have some new panelists joining us for that. Um, some folks who are really passionate about the book and the story. Yeah, we have some very devoted Wrinkling Time fans gonna join the panel. So that should be, um, given how interesting, but also like very different from the book, the trailers look, I think, Hopefully that'll be an interesting discussion. So, yeah. And then um, we get to reveal now the rest of our year. Um, so we had, we had already announced the new movies last in our last uh, movie club um, that we were going to cover throughout the years. And by new, we just mean release this year. So let's not get into a discussion new versus old again, as we did on Facebook. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Um, the new movies, that is the, the movies that are going to be released through the rest of the year, uh, in addition to Wrinkle in Time. Um, of course, we have to look at the other uh, Star Wars movie coming out this year. Um, Ready Player One, which is actually another book that I've never read and kind of always wanted to. Um, and then um, sort of following up from our Rogue Beast discussion last year, we had to throw in uh, the next Fantastic Beast film as well at the end of the year. And I'm not going to talk about the movies y'all voted on because you didn't vote for mine. So. I'm just going to let Kat do that part. Curtis is, so we, you know this whole thing isn't entirely rigged. Curtis is picked and not get voted. So we already established Hitchhiker's Guide as, you know, the first one we're going to do is a follow-up to Nithgar Academy. But we, you know, set up a poll. Hopefully you all chipped in and helped us decide what are the other older movies that we're going to look at throughout the year. Um, I threw in the percentages because I think, they're interesting. Everybody could choose up to four and we had six options. Um, so the uh, winning four are Alien, She, Edward Scissorhands, and Night of the Living Dead. So pretty good mix of random genres and decades that hopefully should be interesting. And so basically the way that we worked it out is we'll, we'll kind of be alternating these. So we'll do kind of one new one, one older one. I think that works throughout the full year, although I can't remember if there were any spaces there where we kind of fit um, some of the older ones, like two in, in between. But uh, we'll get that full schedule out and uh, so everyone can see, you know, when we're doing those older films as well. The, the new ones obviously are tied to sort of their release dates. We're, we're aiming for three to four weeks after the release date for each of those. Um, so, yeah. And uh, Arthur, I'm not sure which movie you're talking about, but. Um, we do, you know, for some of the ones that maybe have multiple versions of the films, we'll primarily be focused on the ones um, we had put like the years, like I know she has had various incarnations. Um, may, was there was there another version of Hitchhiker's Guide too, maybe that um, we can look at and, uh, you know, maybe talk about including that as part of the discussion as well, for sure. Oh, he was referring to Wrinkle in Time. Yes, there oh, okay. are. Was there, 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 there was, was like a, a previous movie version of it and everything. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, cool. So that said, let's get into the discussion. Sorry, I went ahead too far. Um, so I, you know, I think like we did last time, like let's have this fairly open-ended. We did write down some notes um, and I just wanted to start out, I guess, maybe talking about the theme of failure. Cause I personally thought, I remember thinking the first time, just even while the movie was going on, like, wow, they're talking a lot about failure. Maybe this is important. Maybe this is a theme. Um, you can, you can tell why I became a literature major because I can pick those big things out um, like that. But um, I just threw in some thoughts here of like, either things that these people, these characters said or, or things that were said about them or in the case of Finn and Rose, it's just kind of like a lot of things all in a row. Um, but I just kind of want to open it up to the group. Like, um, I guess one, do you agree? Like, is that like, if there is an overarching theme, um, is it failure? Is it how we deal with failure and learning from it? Um, is there something else that you sort of picked out? Um, and maybe we can talk about some of these specific cases um, and I'll just throw it to the panel to see who responds first. I mean, I thought, I definitely think failure is a theme. <clears throat> and I think failure with weakness in particular, um, if you think about Snoke, what Snoke says to Kylo Ren <clears throat> about manipulating weakness, and which is what he did to, to Ben. Um, and I think weakness is also what Yoda tells Luke. Um, it's you know, teach mistakes, teach weakness, teach failure. Um, and so it's not just learning from your failures, like what, like your actions, like what you've done and haven't, haven't successfully, successfully done, um, but also your own inner weaknesses um, and concentrating and turning them into strengths um, and letting them not be manipulated by someone outside of, of you. Yeah, I'll chime in yeah. here. First, first uh, Dominic Nardi, for those of you don't, who don't know me, um, I'm primarily oh, yes. a introduced. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm primarily a political scientist who works in Southeast Asia, but um, also a big Star Wars fan, as you can see by my little friend here. So, in terms of failure, I actually wrote a bit about this in my uh, shameless plug, my blog Nardi Views, recently about with regards to Luke, Luke Skywalker, because. One of the big controversies of this movie is that Luke fails. And a lot of fans were upset by that. It was somewhat traumatizing to see our childhood hero who saw the light in Darth Vader be, be tempted to kill his nephew because he saw this darkness in him. So I think it's partly, I, I think it's part, it's a really interesting generational issue actually in that in most pop culture movies and most you know, science fiction genre films, to the extent a hero fails, it's usually for a very brief moment in time. And it's usually something that's overcome pretty quickly within the course of the film. Um, you know, Superman maybe fails to save somebody, but then resolves it pretty quickly. What I found really interesting about Fairy in this film, it's, it's failure that affected the character for a long time. And that spoke to me in that that's kind of how life is and that like we can fail and that failure stays with us and we have to figure out how to resolve that failure failure isn't just like an obstacle that we jump over and you know i think that's why yoda's words spoke to me too because 
you know, you can't run away from failure. You either have to learn from it and accept it, or if you're like Kylo Ren, Kylo Ren has failed, but he wants to kill the past. He wants to deny that he's failed, and so he remains bitter and angry, and he keeps failing. So that brings to mind, I don't know if this is attributable or just one of those like proverbs that doesn't have a real uh, source you can trace it back to, but the whole idea of like failure is not falling down, but refusing to get up. And so like by that definition, I guess like, yeah, if, if, if you're able at some point, you know, is, is there sort of a statute of limitations on failure? Like, is there a point where you just say like, I failed and okay, that's it. Like, that's just the way it goes. Or do you always sort of have a chance to come back around? And I guess that maybe Luke as like the longest failure of the film, <laughs> if we mm. can call him that, like based on the fact that he like goes off and hides for many years and whatever, like does, you know, is, is that a failure or does like his actions at the end ultimately redeem himself? Um, well, you were starting, you kind of touched on the thing I was thinking about, which is the distinction of what is the failure that we're defining? Is it the momentary temp temptation? Because kind of what, you know, Dom was saying is, you know, when characters fail, heroes fail in these types of stories, it's, it's a momentary lapse that they recover from. And I feel like in a way Luke's thing qualifies for that. I mean, it's really shown as, he, you see it from two different times. So you get slightly different versions of exactly what happened, but he's tempted. He considers doing something that it seems like from his point of view, pretty quickly within that moment, he, you know, stops himself or he regrets it. Um, so is that the failure or is the failure, the reaction to it, the going off and um, hiding part of it? Because I, you know, kind of also touching on the reaction that Dom brought up about, you know, how fans have felt really, you know, betrayed by that in terms of their favorite character uh, making that big of a mistake. Is it really that big of a mistake? Is it presented as this kind of irredeemable failure that he then has to go off and sort of sequester himself about? Or is it like, you know, just a kind of... Uh, more standard character thing of he had a momentary lapse in judgment that he immediately sort of regretted. Um, I think it's, I, oh, go ahead, Emily. I was just going to say, I, I, I think I'm Emily Strand, by the way, for um, folks I haven't met. Um, and I wrote over on my shameless pl plug, uh, uh, the blog that I write for Hogwarts professor um, that I do think that failure is a main theme of this film and it's a very leveling theme of the film. Um, uh, you know, um, and, and I, yeah, I think this is a really interesting question of, of, of what is the failure? Um, and I, I'm looking at this little picture of Yoda that you've got here. And I, I just, in my head, I've got him saying to Luke, when Luke, when he raises the X-wing out of the swamp on Dagobah and Luke says, I, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. <laughs> and so, sure. to, you know, to Curtis's question about, you know, what is this failure? It, it, you know, is this just a failure? You know, it's not, it's not, um, the failure is not failing. It's, it's failing to get back up again. You know, it's this failure of belief in oneself, belief that you can, 
that you can prevail even though you have been unsuccessful in the past. And and uh, is Luke's biggest failure his hiding out on Octo, or is it what happened between him and, and Kylo Ren, um, or or his failure in response to Rey not to jump on the Millennium Falcon and go help out when needed? But um, yeah, I mean, I, it is. I wonder about that believing in oneself enough to persevere through the failure, and and how that lesson carries over to this film. And another nuance to the question, um, Ben Bassett in the chat asks: Is this a believable failure for Luke, for for the long term fans of the story who have invested in the character? Um, is that what's bothering people, or is it more the the failure itself? Is it the failure as presented in characterization? What it, what is it that's kind of rubbing people the wrong way? I and find failure very or easy. They have it rubbed the wrong way. <laughs> I guess I have more trouble believing success sometimes than I do failure. You know, failure is such a human thing, and I don't have. I didn't watch. I didn't you know, fall in love with Star Wars until I was 38. So I don't have the baggage of having played with Luke action figures all my life and, you know, having collected them. And I mean, I'm a big fan of Luke, but when he, when he was embittered and afraid and isolated on that island, I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm kind of surprised Obi-Wan wasn't that way on Tatooine, but you know, for some, for whatever reason he wasn't. Luke was my hero when I was younger and I, I certainly had my share of action figures, um, but I just so just to provide some context and going back to Kat's original question, um, at the end of Return of the Jedi, Luke was the icon of compassion in the Star Wars universe. He he forgave his father. He saw the light side in Darth Vader, who's basically space Hitler. So that's why the that's why his temptation to kill Ben, even though it's momentary, even though he overcomes it. He's a pretty big failure. It would be like, it would be like, um, like Mother Teresa, you know, her her faith lapsed, her faith in Christianity lapsing, which my understanding is it did. But yeah. you know, it's, it's it's that level of failure. It's a, and also of course the consequence of that that immediate failure was Ben Solo turning to the dark entirely, killing all the other Jedi. So there there are, there are repercussions to that. Whether it's believable, again. My, I go into this more in my blog post, so I won't go uh, on too long, but I, I think it makes sense. And there's a lot that happens between, between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, you know, 30 years, a lot of room for character development. Um, I think it makes sense with the character, though. And one of the things I like about it is that it would have been very easy for the film to try to rationalize the failure and say, Oh, Luke was tempted to kill Ben because he had a very, he had a very specific vision that Ben would try to kill Han, or that Ben would do this, or that that there was that we understood why Luke was tempted to do this. It was rational, but that wouldn't be as human a failure. That would be, you know, that'd be more, you know, that adding logic to it. Ra that that rationalization, I think, would make the character arc less powerful by making it vague by leaving what Luke does morally ambiguous, you know, it's more of it's more of a failure. And I think that's that's why that's why it sends Luke in such a funk. That's why he goes into exile, because it is a big deal. It's not just you know, it's it wasn't as clear as, you know, do you kill baby, you know, baby Hitler. So I don't you know, so it worked for me in that sense. Yeah. I would that's agree. Oh 
I was gonna say the word that Luke uses is instinctual. Mm -hmm. Like it was an, kind of, it, it was a very human type of failure. Let's go on, David. Oh, um, I hope I don't take us too far off of, of this line of reasoning, but I think one of the things that, that caused me to believe, uh, you know, to, 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 to like that aspect of, of Luke's failure in that moment where he has that, that momentary feeling of wanting to kill Ben is that for me anyways, it highlights um, the fact that the last Jedi in particular, um, we've been talking a lot about failure at an individual level, but I think uh, the last Jedi is, has a, uh, a very conscious um, also approach to the, to the question of institutional failure. Mm -hmm. And I think that moment um, where Luke ponders uh, killing um, killing Ben is when is when he recognizes the the possible institutional failure of the Jedi Order. Right, that's what sends him into this exile, and it, it's one of the the overarching themes I think of this movie as a whole. And that that's a really crystallizing moment for me, anyways, in that film uh, to highlight. All right, institutionally, there there's whether it's the Jedi Order, the failure for of proper proper governance governance with the Empire and the and the the republic and and the new re rebellion governments um or even just the the class inequality that we see in this movie as well and uh so i think that that particular moment i think is a great way in the film where they unite that that aspect of individual failure with institutional failure and that theme of institutional failure is so germane to star wars i, I mm. think i think people um who've dismissed the prequels have also sort of dismissed recognizing that theme because that, I mean, you know, that the prequels are not just the story of Anakin Skywalker's downfall. It's just, it's the downfall of the Jedi order. And that's the subtext of all those, uh, those, those films that I think people will dismiss. And, and it's, you know, I think maybe folks would, I don't know, maybe embrace this film a little bit more if, if they, not that lots of people have, of course, but, um, but some of, some of the problems seem like the same problems that people had with the prequels. Spoken like someone who didn't have a visceral reaction to the prequels based on their childhood memories of what Star Wars is supposed to be. Um, yeah, so one of the things I really liked about sort of the flashbacks where we where we see um, Luke and, and Kylo and, and Luke's moment of failure is is the progressive revelation and the subjectivity of it, because it really gives that um, from a certain point of view type of uh you know feeling to it where you're you're getting both you're getting luke sort of initially telling ray like well this is what happened you know and then like she gets from kylo ren like well this is what happened in my view like i wake up and there's luke standing over me ready to kill me and then like you get more of it from luke and it's kind of this pro progressive revelation there and you know from a from a fail from a perspective of like failure too like i wonder how much like like Luke not telling maybe like the full story, like in the beginning, is that, you know, believe that sort of subjective, subjective, excuse me, subjective um, feeling of failure. Because I, I don't think that, I don't think the right question is, you know, is it believable that Luke failed? Um, because like, you know, like Emily said, like, you know, that shows humanity, like everybody fails at some point. And it's not like Luke didn't fail at all in the original films. But I think it's, you know, how big of a failure does he believe he made? And like, maybe externally, we can all look at it and be like, yeah, it was a momentary lapse. And like, 
okay, it sucks that like it drove your nephew into becoming like this evil, you know, guy who like kills lots of people and whatever. But like, you got to forgive yourself those, you know, yourself those momentary lapses to some degree. And like, it's easy for us to say that, but, but maybe in the subjective moment, I'm sure there, I'm sure many people, if not everyone has those moments of like, defining failure that probably to some degree we're all still dealing with as we age and kind of think like if only I'd done something different in that moment like things could have gone so differently um and I think that's true from a from a believability standpoint if you see Luke as someone who's internalizing that failure even if from an external standpoint we can look at it and say like it's not as bad or as big or as uh unrecoverable as you know it might seem to that individual and that's what i find really interesting about luke's failure in this movie because it's 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 you know it's in a way it's a corollary to his journey in, Ret in return of the jedi in return of the jedi luke luke's luke's whole character arc was about compassion showing compassion towards vader bringing him towards the light and so i think a lot of fans saw luke as the icon of compassion and oh well he would never do this to Ben blah 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 but which but what we see in Last Jedi is in well in Return of the Jedi Luke showed compassion towards another person in the Last Jedi he has to show compassion towards himself he has to forgive himself and I think Curtis as your comment was hinting at it's sometimes harder to harder to forgive ourselves for our failures than it is to forgive others and we can say the other objectify them a bit um but you know some sometimes we are our own worst enemy and we are we're the ones that hold ourselves back and luke had to learn that lesson of extending the same compassion to himself that he extended to vader can i interrupt us for one second let's go around and introduce ourselves because i thought mm -hmm. everyone could see your names and i don't know that that's true so and i forget that not everybody knows each other so um I'll start. I'm Kat. Most of you probably know me since, you know, Curtis and I are running these things, but um, yeah, let's go around the circle. Um, well, I'll go next. I'm Curtis. Uh, and yeah, like Kat, I'm obviously a co-host here with the movie club. Um, we do a podcast together as well, Kat and Kurt's TV review. Um, and uh, I've uh, graduated from Signum University, of course, which, which is the parent organization to Mythgard last year um, and still do some kind of marketing and website stuff for them. Uh, so that's me. Am I next in the row? It's, it's hard to see. Well, I'll go. Um, my name's Dave Maddock. Uh, I'm also a MA student uh, at Signum. I'm finishing up my thesis um, on uh, uh, applying lexomics to um, Kenna Wolf's Old English Poetry. So hopefully I will finish that someday. Um, uh, I'm a software engineer by trade and a lifelong Star Wars fan. I already did my introduction briefly, but I'm Dominic Nardi again. Um, I also have written about politics and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. You can search those articles online if that sounds like something you'd be interested in. Uh, as I said, I'm Emily Strand. I am a religion professor and a catechist here in my home diocese of uh, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I write for John Granger's blog, Hogwarts Professor, mostly about Harry Potter, but I sort of cover the Star Wars beat. Um, and as I said before, I am a 
new fan. I'm a sometime uh, student at uh, Signum Mythgard, and I came to my love of Star Wars through Amy Sturgis's um, The Force of Star Wars class uh, just about three years ago. So I'm a new um, and very ardent, zealous Star Wars fan. <laughs> I'm Kelly Arazi. I am also a, a student at Signum. I'm about to start my thesis on Monday, <laughs> um, oh, as the semester starts, um, and I'm hoping to do it on Harry Potter, so that's really cool. Um, I've watched Star Wars since I was a kid, um, but I also took the class with Emily um, on Star Wars a few years ago, and for the first time really looked at it through a different type of lens, so this is really fun for me to to kind of put it into the grander scope of, of learning and looking at things academically. Um, sounds really fun. Great. Um, so yeah, maybe, um, actually one thing I did wanna point out, I meant to, to point out too, is um, I, didn't, I didn't notice, that I didn't know this uh, while watching the movie, but Yoda's, uh, comment there that's up on the up on this presentation um pass on what you have learned strength mastery but weakness folly failure also which um kelly was talking about that that last edition there um that's there's actually that's actually a parallel from return of the jedi the pass on what you have learned and what's really interesting is i think in that instance looking back at that and looking at the context um that's where you know yoda's like dying right on he's on his deathbed and he's like pass on what you've learned, there's another Skywalker, et cetera, et cetera. And like in, in that instance, I think it is that strength mastery that he's talking about, right? Like pass on all the good things you've learned here on Dagobah and whatever. And sort of adding to that, the weakness, folly, failure, um, you almost have to wonder like, I mean, obviously this is however many years later, you know, and we're sort of retconning maybe, but like you could you could almost see Yoda like meaning that other part at the end there too like like you like that's what learning is it's not just always uh you know always the the good parts or or you know the new knowledge that you get but it's you know like what the the slide title suggests that that it's the greatest teacher failure sometimes um so oh, yeah. just wanted and to point out we see that in characters in different characters in the movie like Poe who <laughs> fails a lot in a lot of different ways um but by the end he has to learn through his experiences through his own weaknesses through his own failures um and and finn as well um who is still learning i think um but uh but ray herself is uh, is someone who's searching for answers and she doesn't get them straight on you know she she doesn't ever even when she goes down and, and looks at that 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 kind of dig of a moment where she like goes into the fog and looks for her, she looks for an answer and she tells Kylo that she didn't, she thought for sure she would find the answer she's looking for and she didn't. Um, I think it's because like Kurtz was saying, she has to learn from her own experiences um, and not be given the answers straightforwardly. Yeah, and I want to, I, I think, I want to build on what Emily was saying before about incorporating the prequels because I think if you incorporate the prequels, Yoda's quote in this movie isn't just a 2017 innovation in Star Wars. Yoda in Return of the Jedi was teaching Luke 
based on his own failures in the prequels. We didn't know the prequels back in 1983, obviously, but in terms, if you look at the story of episodes one through six, in episodes two and three, Yoda is a very different character. He's much more aggressive. He's much more willing to whip at the lightsaber and start fighting. In episode three, he goes to challenge Dark Sidious because he's so confident he can take on the Sith Lord. And he fails. He fails to prevent the Galactic War. He fails to stop the Sith using violence. And so when he's seeing him in Empire Strikes Back, Yoda's lessons are very different. There are, don't be aggressive. Don't, you know, don't be the first one to strike. Don't, don't give in to the dark side. Don't take the lightsaber into the cave with you. So those lessons that he's giving in Empire Strikes Back are directly based on the failures that he had in the prequels. So I actually think his quote in The Last Jedi is, is entirely consistent with how he approached his, his pedagogy in Empire Strikes Back. Well, and not to mention, you know, however many years of the Clone Wars that we have, right, mm -hmm. to, to see Yoda sort of uh, even even more of a teacher. And, and I know it kind of jumps back and forth between stories there, but um, particularly thinking about kind of the end of the series um, where where he sort of goes off on his mission to find uh, the Force priestesses and all of that. Um, and faces his own darkness and all of that like as part of that journey it's been a while since i've seen it so i don't remember all of the exact steps there but there you know it's it's kind there's almost like a uh similar um thing there where he's he's facing like you know his own inner darkness and all of that kind of similar to luke in the cave and then you know we can talk about ray and her weird mirror reflection thing that happens in this maybe at some point but um yeah just agreeing with you on that dom i guess uh, this is just all the more reason for qui-gon jinn's force ghost to show up in the next mm. episode i just it would just be so great to have just a little bit more qui-gon jinn just a little i agree although well, may, we might be getting into like deep canon here, but like I, I thought that like he never fully didn't he like never fully like train, and so like he can only appear as like a disembodied voice. But that might just be they did it that way because like they couldn't get the actor to like come back, or something. you know, they couldn't get Liam Neeson to he come back. the Force Ghost in the Clone Wars, but I oh, think that was only I think that was only on Mortis, if yeah. I remember correctly. Uh, funny things happen on Mortis. We don't talk about what happened on Mortis. So, what happens on Mortis stays on Mortis. It may, it may, it may not have been a real Force Ghost, right? Um, no, I think I yeah, but he was the he was the little lights, and then the voice there. But the, he, there's another time that he appears, but it's questionable whether it's it's like a true it's vision. Actually, him. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, um, Sharon uh, Hoff asks, do you think we will see Rey fail? Um, she says, she is no Skywalker, but rather feels more like a Kenobi. They have her set up to rescue the last remaining Star Skywalker, Ben. Will they have her fail or succeed? First of all, I think we do see Rey fail mm. in this movie. Yeah. Um, we see her fail to bring Luke to the resistance like she was meant to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it is her failure as well as it is Luke's. Um, and then I would say she crashes pretty hard in her little meetup with Kylo Ren. 
Um, that doesn't go, as Luke says, that does not go the way that she has planned. Um, although, you know, some interesting things come out of it. Um, so she does not fail to float stuff, though, which I think is a really good thing for her. Yeah, and I, like, I'm sure we could go character by character. I probably should have added Ray in here somewhere, but I couldn't think of a good actual quote to put for her. Um, she yeah, cries I mean, in almost every scene in the movie. Have you noticed that? She cries yeah. so much in this movie. Yep. I don't know what to make of it. I, I didn't mind it. It didn't make her a weak character in my opinion, but I, I wonder how the people, how others might have, yeah. how that might have affected them or. I noticed the same thing. And, and she cries, I think it just, everything moves her so deeply. And I think that it's a really strong move for a movie like Star Wars to not be afraid of emotion um, in that way, um, or in a, a lot of the ways that they have done in this movie, um, particularly. Um, but she is, and it's not, I don't know, it's a, a lot of the times I think it is about her personal past um, that she is crying about, um, or about what she expects. Um, but Curtis, you said you didn't know what um, maybe quote to put for her, but she does actually say, she tells Luke, you know, you didn't fail Ben, Ben failed you. I won't fail you. Um, sure. And and I don't know if that's exactly true. I think she wants it to be true, but um, I don't know if she, you can want to not fail somebody, you know, a, as much as you can, but you can't predict the future and you, you don't know what's going to happen. And ultimately she does leave Luke is is that the same sort of hubris that Luke even talks about that the Jedi have in general? I think so. I mean, if it's not hubris, what is? I mean, she goes off and she tries to, and after what, two conversations with Kyle? Like, if you think about it, they had three, uh, with one of our Facebook uh, followers called it Force Time, TM. Force Time, yeah. Time. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they, they, uh, they talked two or three times. And the first two times she is calling him a monster and a snake and all that sort of stuff. And then it's like one conversation later and she's like, wait, there's still good in him. <laughs> and then she goes off and thinks I that can she can feel him and change his mind. And that's gotta be hubris. I, I mean, it's gotta be that same sort of, I'm all sorts of powerful, even if I don't fully understand the power within me, um, I could use it, you know, I don't know. Not just that, she thinks she's powerful. Oh, Go ahead. Uh, uh. It's not that she thinks she's powerful, but it's that she thinks she can be the next Luke Skywalker because what she tries to do is exactly what Luke tried to do in Return of the Jedi, and she fails. So it's this kind of this interesting dynamic where she thinks, "Oh, Luke's not coming. Maybe I can do this myself," but she can't. So, and that's a pretty big failure. And then there's the consequence too of um, uh, her her little adventure ends up in Snoke being dead, and I don't know if that's good for the galaxy in that. You basically have an emo teenager now in charge of the first order. Um, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's good. I think the galaxy might have been better off had Snoke remained in charge of the first order. He was evil, but he seemed uh, he seemed like a stable genius, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, where Kylo Ren seems like he could he might really unleash some devastation on the galaxy. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if that if Ray's failure has more consequence than we think it does at this point. I don't know if I agree it's hubris, though. I, I, I identified it more as naivety. 
um, yeah. you know, where she's she's just so idealistic that she just doesn't. And I mean, you know, in, in a sense, it works in her favor with, the, you know, if if we're assuming that the death of Snoke is a good thing, it works in her favor. But uh, but I didn't see it as hubris so much. I don't I don't really get that vibe from her at all. It's more so, of that quality where Yoda said, you know, she believes, you know, she does believe despite all this having come from nowhere and no one. She does believe. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking like like maybe that idea of like I don't know enough of how I can fail, so I don't know that I can fail. So you don't know I what you're doing. try to do this and wind up succeeding because you just didn't know that it was possible to fail anyway. Maybe I don't know. It's it's like it's like kids in real life who watch a movie like Star Wars who see superheroes doing crazy things with a lightsaber and think, oh, okay, if somebody shoots me. I can take a sword and deflect a bullet. Well, you can't. Our legends sometimes have greater powers than we do, and you can't always do what they do. You can't always emulate them that way. That, I think, was like one of the most interesting themes of this movie is the idea of legends. Legends living up to themselves, legends mm -hmm. living up to expectations, um, the total dismantling of them, and then at the end, a total resurgence of hope within the legends, um, coming back in the real world in a very powerful way. Um, if, I don't want to change tactics completely, but um, like Dom was saying, I think that that is a really interesting kind of theme within this movie, and it's all connected to choices and failure and mistakes and all this sort of stuff. Well, and that's kind of where I threw in um, the quote there from Leia of we fought till the end, but the galaxy has lost all hope. And I, I feel like, and feel free to disagree with me and, and, you know, whatever, I feel like that's her expressing her own, at least subjective failure when nobody else, you know, responds to the distress call, right? Nobody else arrives to help them. Now, I mean, then Luke kind of sort of arrives, um, and, and helps them, you know, get away. But to me, that's whether we see it ultimately as failure, you know, there's, you know, we see the legend building at the end and, and maybe, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not a failure because it, you know, drew Luke out and it, you know, created him as even more of a legend and that will lead to further uprising and it'll be the spark and all of that. But like, I feel like in that moment, that that's her down moment of, of expressing failure, like this whole, the entire movie from, you know, uh, the transports lifting off of whatever planet they were on at the beginning to, the car. you know, thank you, um, to, uh, you know, to their ending there at Crate, like, that it's all kind of been for naught and, and her feeling that she has failed um, as a leader, as someone who, you know, is resisting this teenage angst although he's not like kylo ren something like 29 or something in the thing like he's like 10 years older than ray is even like i think in in the context of the story so like it is kind of weird to think of him as a teenager but he totally acts like one mm -hmm. um anyway so all that to say that like that's kind of why i included her in there at the end um because i do feel like at least for her she feels she seems to feel like that that's a failure that they've failed and and um, I think she even says at one point, like the spark is out, right? Like the, the light's gone or something, something along those lines. I don't have the I, exact. I, 
I feel like it's it's not exactly like the um the the rebels or the resistance actions that have failed them. It's the loss of hope, um, and especially coming from especially coming from Leia, who of, of course is the, the most famous line is "Help me, you're my only hope." She is identified with hope both within and without this the Star Wars films, um, and especially in this movie, they uh, Holdo. It's a Holdo and Poe, and they have that moment of you know what does, um, what does Leia say about hope? You know, if you, if you can see it all the time, it's not really there. It's the hope. It's right. when you're not there that's hope. So she's identified with this 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 feeling of hope, um, and for her to say that at the very end, that for me was one of the saddest moments. Is that she's lost it within herself. She's lost it within the galaxy. To her, has lost it. Um, I thought that that was a really interesting choice and a really really sad one as well. That is why she fails. Mm -hmm. I just keep coming back to that line. This idea of hope and belief and, you know, kind of this intangible thing that draws us forward, even when we don't know that we're going to succeed and, you know, got to hold on to it. That, and that's what Ray has. I think that's what Ray has that keeps pushing her forward. I could add one one more piece to this failure conversation that I thought is really interesting, and this is a, this is more of a metatextual comment. In that, usually, this is the second film of the sequel trilogy, and usually, in the second act of a three act play, the second act is when you want your characters to start failing a bit. You know, they they're struggling, they don't know what to do, they're they're, they're searching for the dragon, the flower, they they haven't overcome the obstacle, and. And even in Star Wars, if you look at Attack of the Clones, which is the second act of the prequels, or Empire Strikes Back in the original trilogy, the characters fail in those movies. What's really interesting in this movie is that Ryan Johnson took what is just normally what happens in a, in a plot and made it a theme. Yeah, so it's not just text, but it's, all, it's not just subtext, but it's also text, or it's not just text, but it's also subtext, however that goes. But it's, it's more, it's integrated into the story in an interesting way. Yeah, and that um, reminds me, I think it was actually, I was having a conversation with you, Dom, over chat, like after I first saw it, and, and saying like, the kind of, not the biggest thing that I would have expected, but like one one of the sort of weirdest things maybe is how it ends, because I do think it definitely ends on that more hopeful note. And it almost feels like it ends in the beginning of a third act, rather than at the end of a second act, um, similar to how Empire ends, you know, where it's a lot bleaker, you know, sort of outlook for um, the rebels at that point. Um, I don't know that I have anything more valuable to say than just that, but just kind of reminded me that that was coming off of my first viewing. That was sort of how I felt like, oh, it, it, given all of the themes of failure and, and sort of maybe despair that are in it, it does actually kind of, it ends on that hopeful note, you know, with the, the stable boy and the, you know, yeah. broom and all of that the the broom boy who has a name but i don't remember what it is even though you just told me all right like, there you go i knew that harry <laughs> that's what i heard i heard you say harry potter <laughs> pretty much pretty much Basically. like accio broom that's his so. alias <laughs> <laughs> yes very much so uh so um kelly you brought up pose frequent failures um which um, also brings up maybe um, the concept of some of the gender uh, topics that we were discussing or that, that have been discussed by many people. Um, 
and I know has been discussed, I think, at least in one of the blog posts, one of you wrote, I don't, I've read so many blog posts, I can't read, I can't keep them all straight. Um, but Wanda, Wanda, um, you know, bringing that into the discussion a little bit too, uh, and not just in reference to Poe, but um, overall, uh, perhaps, although there's certainly a lot of Poe that we can talk about here. Um, so yeah, um, actually, Emily, maybe I'll throw it to you because I think you brought up um, both of these articles um, to the panelists kind of when we were discussing what to talk about. And, um, you know, maybe maybe you can sort of give your thoughts and then we can just kind of keep the conversation going from there. Um, yeah, yeah, I did. I took those two blog posts that were so strikingly um, kind of discordant and I, I wrote about them with the context of um, this theme of failure. Um, and 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 because that's the thing. Um, well, you know, uh, I do I do very much admire Bishop Barron, uh, and I follow his thoughts on popular culture as I follow his thoughts on many things, um, and use them them in my classroom and and everything. So when I somebody pointed out his blog to me, a, a female uh, uh, colleague, former colleague of mine, um, and was talking about how angry his review made her. Um, and she just like couldn't get out of her head and it just like ruined her day and everything. And, um, so, so I read it and it, you know, I kind of had the same reaction, like, oh my gosh, really? Like this is, this is what you saw. Um, and I thought, I thought it was just, uh, I mean, it's, his take is this, it's the first quote there on your screen. It's this, this idea that the, the mythic, uh, you know, dimensions of the, of the, the franchise were just, you know, eclipsed by this ideologically driven, you know, feminist agenda, aggressive feminist agenda. And, um, and I really didn't see the movie like that at all. I thought that was a really, uh, an oversimplification. Um, but I had already read the, the previous, uh, the, the one from Den of Geek that's below it. That's, um, basically says that this whole film is a diatribe against toxic masculinity. Now, listen, I am a firm believer in the reality of toxic masculinity. I'm not, sorry, sorry, everybody. Um, but you know, I, I am somebody who laments it on a regular basis. Um, but I, I thought that, and, and at first I was like, huh, yeah, yeah, they're, right, and Poe, and he's always mansplaining people and everything. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was just like, yeah, that's, that's too simplistic. Because the first thing that I came away with, um, probably midway through the movie, is I really didn't like that Holdo. Um, I was all ready to like her because mm -hmm. I had read the Leia young adult novel and I was all I was like, hey, this is like she's like Luna Lovegood. She's super spacey, but she comes through in the end and like she's got purple hair. It's really cool. I was ready to like her. I was re I love Laura Dern. And, and I was like, wow, she reminds me of a really, really insecure and power hungry former coworker that, you know, like I just, I, I couldn't stand her. And I, I didn't know, understand why she wasn't, um, collaborating more with Poe, you know, since Leia obviously trusted him, you know, why, what was her agenda against Poe? So, so I tried to point out in the post how I just thought that both of these extreme, um, interpretations of the film were just that, where they were extreme and they were missing a lot of the nuance and the subtext of the film, which, and we've talked a lot about that already, which is failure. And this is, you know, this is just something that does not uh, take sides in the gender war. In this movie, everybody fails. I mean, Holdo fails in the ultimate way. You know, she, she has to give her life to even save a remnant 
of the resistance that she was had this you know objective to protect and you know i think when you you know my my brother is a pilot and he says any crash you walk away from is a success you know even if you crash the plane if you walked away it's a success well she doesn't walk away you know from from her act and even though she you know she does achieve something um it's still this really uh ultimate failure and i don't think that poe is just this mansplaining mess either i mean he's right and and i think the scenes are carefully drawn so that we will identify and side with Poe. So I don't think it's, I think it's really overly simplistic to say that this is just some sort of uh, feminist agenda. And, you know, the, the, ma uh, the major argument I made against that is um, the fact that, you know, Luke Skywalker saves everybody in this movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he is, first of all, you've got this plot starting in The Force Awakens that we have to get Luke back because he's the answer to our problems. You know, th that's problematic from this uh, point of view of saying that this has a feminist agenda. Um, and then finally, when Luke does, you know, in the end, provide the ruse and, you know, in this, this extremely powerful, most powerful act of force manipulation I think we've ever seen in Star Wars, uh, what he does at the end of this film, and, and then allows the remnant to escape um, through this act thus sacrificing himself. I mean, he saves everybody. And if we're going to read ideological statements into the film and into the events of the film, I think this one is rather paternalistic, you know, with, with this magic man that comes and kind of, kind of saves everybody. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't really see it that way either. It's just, but the argument could be made to counter the idea that it's, you know, aggressively feminist. So, um, yeah. So, so those are, those are kind of my views on that. The one thing I wanted to add, though, is like I think you're right that I, I think the movie prompts us to, and and that a lot of people look at like the you know Luke coming, distracting to save us. But let's not discount the fact that like had Ray not been up like taking up all of Snoke's attention and like working with Kylo Ren, like there would have been a lot more attention being paid to those people who were escaping. And then obviously she and Chewie come out and, you know, draw off the fighters so that the, so like, like there's a lot of attention and, and awareness of Luke as, you know, the waving my lightsaber around being the distracting thing going on here while Ray's off doing all of like this other stuff to, you know, actually help save the people like, and, and, provide, you know, lift the rocks and to fly the ship and and do all of these things that um, you could almost draw a parallel there. And I, I'm actually just sort of thinking of this. I, this isn't something I thought about until you were just speaking, Emily. But, um, you know, like Leia's comment about Holdo not being as concerned with the, the glory and the heroism, but being more concerned about preserving the light. Like you could almost apply that to Ray and Luke. Like Luke is the flashy one with the lightsaber out front while Ray's in the back lifting the rocks and, you know, making an escape hole for the people to actually get out. So like even that, like, I don't think it's as like, it's not as clear as like, oh, Luke saved the day. It's like, well, no, they both saved the day. And without either of them, the day would not have been saved for any of the rest of the resistance fighters. Well, I right. agree with that. And I think the problem is when you try to stick the film into these gendered boxes, I think anytime you do that, you, you can come up with a counterpoint that kind of messes with your interpretation. So I just, I didn't find either of those very gendered interpretations of the film to be very helpful at all. Cause I think you're right. It's a lot more nuanced than, than it may look on the surface. Another way of putting this is, 
um, are the lessons that Poe learns lessons that might be beneficial to some characters who are women? And I think you, you all know Battlestar Galactica and Starbuck, who is the Poe Dameron of Battlestar Galactica, who's the hotshot pilot and always has these crazy plans. Starbuck would probably have, Starbuck is the Poe. She would probably have the same lessons. She probably has, I'd argue she has to learn those lessons about um, following orders. So it's, you know, so, and it's, it's, and I, it's not an invalid interpretation of the film to say this film speaks to me um, because it, it reminds me of issues of toxic masculinity and so on and so forth. But it's not that the, the, the failures and successes of the characters aren't specifically tied to gender in that way, I don't think. I think they're more universal than that. Well, and I think we're going to have trouble if success and failure are the only barometers we use to discuss the the um, success of um, how any characters are written, male or female, or, or that's the only way we can talk about gender is we have a scorecard and we mm -hmm. see who came up winning. And based on your point value, it's either, you know, misogynist or misandrist, you know, like yeah. surely there must be other ways to, and I'm not saying you guys are, but I think like a lot of the, the, the conversation is driven around that of like who won who won the movie um and like i've gone on this diatribe about kind of disliking the term strong female characters for that reason like i think by any standard ray qualifies for that but as you guys are saying they're not afraid to show emotion you know a lot of times making a female character strong means making her masculine but here, that's not necessarily true. I mean, in some ways, she might break gender stereotypes, but in others, she's allowed to be more, um, quote, feminine in her display of, you know, emotion or intuition or whatever those traditional female qualities are. So um, I think the theme of failure is certainly interesting, but I think we're, we get into problems when we tie that too closely into the discussion of gender. Yeah, I think, oh, okay. I think it's important too to, to remember that feminism is about the equality, right? And it's about, it's not saying that women are, are better than men, um, but it's about a balance, which is what the force is about. And I think that there's a lot to say and think about in terms of what um, they're doing when it comes to balancing genders and um, life and death and all of these things that we kind of can consider as opposites in this way as you know there's something between everything um, that's in the middle and every character and I think we actually actually learn more from not just Ray but in, in Luke but like others you know other characters we learn a lot from Rose um, I think that her vision and her her feminine characteristics like love um, is what's it, what ultimately will carry a lot of the characters forward. Um, and I think that there's a lot to learn um, in what's between these opposites. And building up Kat's point too, and just about how female characters are sometimes uh, made more masculine. One of the things I liked last, that last Jedi did is it embraced the femininity of the female characters. You know, if you notice, a lot of them were, were rings. And that was actually, I think that was something that Carrie Fisher suggested. Um, 
Admiral Holdo wears um, a, a pink dress, not obviously not a military uniform, and she has purple hair, or it might be a purple dress, but if she wears a dress, she, she looks female. She, and even, even Leia's outfit is more feminine than what she wore in Force Awakens, which is more of a masculine uh, uh, army uniform. So it's kind of interesting how the film you know, went in that direction and it wasn't afraid to, um, you know, to, to um, embrace those aspects of femininity. Yeah. And another moment I really liked um, is they weren't afraid to embrace uh, the, the female bond um, with Holdo, especially that moment of mm. uh, Leia saying goodbye to Holdo. So rare is it in a film like Star Wars, I feel, um, that we get to see a female bond like that. Um, in that the moment where they're just grasping hands um, and it's this, this love between two women and this admiration and respect. Um, and it's a really powerful moment and it's between two women and that's really important. Um, I think it's a really, I just liked a lot of the, the choices they made in terms of, of that. From, from what I understand that, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying Carrie Fisher wrote that scene. She did. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say as well. From oh, what I understand, sorry. she wrote that. No, it's fine. Um, that she wrote that and came up with that. And, and that um, just based on the one article I read that, that Laura Dern, you know, really wanted to express like, like it's an expression of, you know, appreciation and friendship and, and all of that between characters and respect. Um, but it was also, you know, Laura Dern saying to Carrie Fisher, like all of those same things, you know, in the subtext and all of that was really. And it makes sense because it's not something I think we see a lot of the time. So um, hats off to Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. um, wanted to bring up, uh, so Sharon mentions in the comments, um, I think going back, I don't remember who, who mentioned this, but um, asking, you know, why do we see Holdo's sacrifice as a failure, but Luke's sacrifice as a success? And and I'll just sort of throw my two cents in there, but um, who are, I, I don't, was this Emily or, or I don't remember oh. who's, who was talking about that. But um, like, to me, I don't think it's so much that, I, I think it's that the plan that Holdo sort of um, was masterminding ended up being a failure, but I don't, I don't know that. And I actually, I did try to think of a quote for Holdo as well on the previous slide there of the failures. And I couldn't come up with one because I, I think of all the people like, like not that maybe she doesn't like, like I think there are some things that she could have done better or differently or, or whatever. I don't know that I would say that the failure is really hers in that instance, but I guess to add another layer into it, it's like, you know, where do we lay sort of the ultimate blame? Like at, at that point, like from a military command spec perspective, she's at the top, right? Like, so is this like a, you know, she's the ultimate person and can't pass the buck. And so like, ultimately at some level, everything is that happens is sort of her responsibility, whether it's failure or success or whatever. Um, or do we blame like Poe who, you know, you know, fosters a mutiny and, and, you know, goes against that. Do we blame, you know, Finn and Rose for kind of going off and doing their own thing, which Poe is involved in as well. Um, and how far back, like, does that chain, like, how far back can you place blame, like, in sort of the chain of events that lead up to the failure? And, and I see the failure there being up the plan and, you know, transports getting shot at and all of that, um, you know, before Holdo ultimately does what she does. Um, 
So just kind of throwing that out there, like any thoughts, reactions, comments, personal attacks. I won't personally attack, but I will say that uh, Luke, I, I'm only judging Luke's uh, final act there by his own standards. He said he went to that island to die. So he figured out a pretty good way to help his friends and to achieve that goal without yeah. you know, committing suicide or anything macabre like that. I mean, he gave his life, but that was his goal to die. I, I, I never heard that a stated goal of Holdo. Um, so, so that's the kind of judgment, but I mean, again, I think there's just nuances galore in all these things. I'm the main point I was making in terms of Luke being the one who saves everybody in this film was against the argument that there's some overly aggressive, uh, feminist, you know, which really is, you know, veiled term for feminazi or whatever, um, uh, agenda in this film. I was just trying to make an argument against that. I really think that, you know, Luke's failures are many, obviously, but, you know, in, in his death, it's really a success for him. I also think Holdo, Holdo's end is a, was a more of a preventable tragedy in that Holdo, um, was a new leader coming to a new ship with a new crew, and like many leaders going to new organizations, didn't know didn't know the people. Um, there were morale issues. It wasn't just Poe who mutinied. There's actually several characters, including some female pilots, including Rose and Finn. Um, so that was indicative of a larger morale problem on the ship. Not that she should have told everybody in the ship her plan, but um, you know, leadership is tough. And Leia, I think showed a very different model of leadership where she she saw Poe acting up and she said, come here, and whacked him across the face and then took him inside softly and said, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Holdo didn't have those leadership skills. So I think that's really where the, that's why it's more of a failure because something that could have been prevented um, had things worked out a bit differently. I think where they both fail, um, if we're talking about Luke and Holdo, um, is they're with, they withhold information um, when it's really important to teach um, and to be open and honest. Um, Holdo, obviously, with Poe, um, I don't quite see the reason why she couldn't just tell him the plan. I don't see why the whole, every single person on that darn <laughs> ship couldn't know exactly what was going on. Um, but I do think that, you know, she doesn't have to tell them, but certainly she, I think she, she withheld information that she didn't need to. And Luke with, um, with withholding the truth of the moment where he failed Ben, um, if Ray heard that from Luke first, would things turned out differently? Would she have such a strong reaction to try to suddenly believe Kylo Ren could be saved, suddenly be sort of more on the side of, let's go after him, he's our hope and you're not. I, I don't know, um, but I think that the failure, if they both, if there's a thin diagram of their failures, it meets with uh, not teaching and not being open in, in communication. Yeah, um, so Sharon brings up um, actually another point that um, I've seen elsewhere, and I don't, I don't remember this in the movie, but um, maybe it's sort of an offhand comment of there being the issue of, of a potential leak within yeah the rebel ship. So mm -hmm. that's why Holdo is staying so close to the vest um, with her plan. I guess my, my thought or my reaction to that is she also says like, I've dealt with flyboys like you who are dangerous yeah. and whatever. And like, yeah. if she knows that and knows that flyboys like Poe can be sort of 
well, it can go off half cocked or whatever, mm-hmm. like then, then maybe there is like given Leia's tr- clear trust in him at some point, you know, previous to that, like maybe she should have just taken this high and said, look, I've dealt with people like you, but Leia trusted you. So I'm going to trust you too. And like, there might've been, there might've went away to split the hair there, like, and do a little more, you know, trusting him without trusting the entire ship with the Exactly. And it's not like she, I mean, I think she has absolutely no reason to tell him the first time he asks, like, I I mean, that's, that's not exactly like, like he should listen to orders. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, but when it comes to the point where there's a mutiny on your ship and you would rather, fight back then communicate with your <laughs> people i think that that is really what what hits home for me right i mean and this comes up a lot i think in you know this kind of storytelling where there's this much you know this many layers and plot and like very you know plot driven things of like if everyone just told each other the truth we wouldn't like this would take care of 90% of the plot issues in most of these stories and a lot of times i think people take that too far. Like you have to take characterization into context of someone might not want to share this information because of this character motivation or this plot reason or whatever. Um, But I do agree. I think by the time, certainly the way it was presented by the time the mutiny breaks out, I think it's time to um, put caution aside and at least tell Poe what's going on. We do have some people who feel passionately about this um, responding to all of this. So I won't read through all of the comments here. Um, But yeah, I mean, so, you know, the the fact is that like, you know, yes, when Poe found out, he told Finn and Rose, who then, you know, it gets related to DJ who like tells the plan and that's how the First Order finds out. So there is like whether there actually is a leak or not, like the information does get leaked and, you know, best of intentions and all of that. Um, but I feel like that's kind of a hindsight excuse. Like if Poe, if Poe knew, if like Holdo was just like, look, we're not telling everyone because we think there might be a leak, but here's what we're going to do. And she could have even told him a fake plan at that and like yeah. just satisfied his curiosity. Like, like there's still a communication issue there. And we've got the obligatory quote from Cool Hand Luke um, as well from, from uh, Kate Neville sharing that with us of what we have here is a failure to communicate, right? Like it's definitely, there's definitely some, there's definitely was a better way to handle, but um, yeah, I mean, if everyone communicated perfectly, then we wouldn't need stories like this to like help us search out our own feelings on things. Right. So, um, yeah, cool. Um, any any other thoughts? I mean, I don't want to move on necessarily if we have more stuff to t- say about the gender issues, but I know there were some other things that we had kind of discussed, topically speaking, and if I can get to my second screen here. Um, so one of the other themes here is about letting things letting things go, letting the past die. And, and maybe we've already touched on this a little bit in our sort of conversation around failures. Um, but what you know I, I guess I guess and maybe this goes to Dom, some of the comments you were making. Um I can't remember if it was even here or, or in our, our pre-discussion, but around sort of the metatextual elements of like how much of this is of the last Jedi is sort of letting go of the past as far as in, in terms of what Star Wars is, what it means, you know, the different ways that um 
it sort of plays off itself. And we do we do have some of some other discussions of like those metatextual elements um, in another slide as well. But um, both like within in the universe itself of like letting the past die, letting things go, moving beyond there. There's kind of a lot of that uh, that goes on. Um, what are what are your thoughts? What would you what did you guys pick out? So my controversial opinion on this is I actually don't think it's a theme of the movie. Um, there are a few issues there. First of all, look at the first quote. Who's, I'm going to pull a Berlin Flieger here. Who says that? What's the context? That's Kylo Ren. He's, he's the one that's saying kill the past. When does the moral lesson of the film come from, from the villain? Almost never. Usually it's the villain who tells us what we should not do, and then the hero tells us what we should do. And then the Luke, Luke's, when Luke talks about ending the Jedi Order, that is him in cynical, depressed mode before, you know, before he talks to Yoda. He, but Luke doesn't end up in the film saying that the past should die. He, at the end of the film, he says, I will not be the last Jedi. And Yoda, even Yoda's quote that you have, the page turners that were not, it's not, I, I, I take that, that less as the, that the past should die, more that we should learn from the past, but not dwell in it. Fail, failure and learn, learning from failure is about not dwelling in the past. If you, if you try to kill the past, as Kylo Ren does, that means you're not really learning from failure because you're just, you're just ignoring the, the past. You're ignoring the failure. Luke embraces the past, but moves on. So I think it's a subtly different lesson than just let the past die. It's learn from the past, but move on with your life. Maybe I can synthesize that a little bit, Dom, because um, I think that that line from Kylo, um, the let the past die, but kill it if you have to, I think are actually two distinct actions. Mm -hmm. uh, so letting the past die is is by definition a passive thing. Um, mm -hmm. And if something dies under that context, uh, oftentimes it's a just thing, right? It was going to die. You did nothing and it passed away. That's very different from kill it if you have to. And by have to, I mean, if you feel like it's just to kill it, right? That's, those are two very distinct things. And I think, I think there can be goodness and, and, and justice in the first thing and almost never in the latter. And I think there's a, there's a distinction going on in the movie there where I think, I think there are things that are appropriate to let pass. And maybe that's the old, the old idea of what the Jedi order is, for example, but then there are things that would be, would be evil to kill it, like actively ending the Jedi Order, right? Maybe that's taking it one step too far. And it's it like when people the, recommend Machete Order for watching the uh, <laughs> films, yeah. where right. you, just, you skip over Phantom Menace completely. I'm like, okay, well, you don't have Qui Gon Jinn, so sorry about your luck. <laughs> yeah, and look at the character who's not letting the past die. If you really look at his actions, Kylo Ren. He's the one who is playing dress up as Darth Vader marching around yeah. with a bunch of stormtroopers sure. he wants the empire 2.0 basically you know he's not letting the past die really he's you know and that's that's a part of the past that probably should die well and okay so he killed his father in the last movie but we're talking about this movie and he doesn't kill his mother right he's not he ultimately doesn't yeah. pull the trigger so there's also yeah like how much can we try is there a bit of um you know, unreliable narration going on here from him. Like, is this like, 
the, the, the idea that I aspire to is letting the past die and killing it if you have to, but even he can't go through with that all the time on his own. In that moment, he's trying to convince Ray to join him. So what does he want her to do? Sure. Oh, forget your past of the resistance. Forget about who your parents were. Forget about all that bad stuff. Join me and we can have a glorious future together. I also think that, that I, or at least the way I saw it, is I think that, I think it's manipulation on his part for sure, um, is you speaking to Ray. But that is after they, they, they he kills Snoke and after that battle, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so the way I saw it was him coming to that re realization. You know, he comes to the realization in this movie, like you were talking about him, you know, he's not letting the past die because he wants to be Darth Vader 2.0. That's not it anymore. Um, he takes his helmet off because Snoke makes fun of him as being basically like a ridiculous version of Darth Vader. Um, and <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and and destroys that, and we never see him in that helmet again. Um, and so, and then up until that moment, he was listening to Snoke to the point where he was kind of taking a part of himself and destroying it. Um, and then this moment, he has killed Snoke, so mm -hmm. he is now letting the past die. Oh. He has, he, this is a moment for him. He's learning this and he is asking Ray to join him. Um, th that's how I saw it. Is he though? And, and I, I think that's how, I think that's how he would think of it. But if you look at his actions again, he is still, in a lot of ways, he's still this bitter little kid who saw yeah. his master, Luke Skywalker, hovering over him with a lightsaber. And rather than admit the possibility that that was maybe a misunderstanding rather than try to resolve that conflict, rather than asking Luke when he saw him and Crate, why did you do that? What was going on? Can we resolve this and move beyond the past? He's all bitter about the past. He takes out his lightsaber, starts attacking Luke. Um, he's still consumed with guilt for killing his father. Um, you know, he, he is still, he's, he's not willing to reconsider that decision he made to go to the dark. So I think in a lot of ways, he is still living in the past. He's not moving Absolutely. on from it. And I don't know if he knows that. Do you know? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like he is—he yeah. acts. We call it teenage angst. Um, I think in part because he doesn't really think. Um, he just acts on emotions, and a lot of those emotions are from the past. And so he might say he might really believe that that's what he's doing, killing the past, and that's mm -hmm. what he intends to do when he goes out and meets Luke. He wants to kill him. He's part of his past um, in this major way, and he's—he's he's done with that. Um, but I think that in another way, he doesn't quite know his own actions and his own what they mean and how how much he refuses to let go of the past uh brandon minnick also brings up a point that i was thinking about too of like yoda's talking about you know so yeah seeing i mean you know for a bibliophile like myself and i'm sure at least several of you um feel the same way like seeing yoda burning books um, is not the uh, image that I had of Yoda, but then of course realizing later that like, oh, the books are actually there. And so, and also actually with, with the tree, I don't know, it kind of looked like the, the starbird if, well, it was flaming. I don't know if anyone else. Yeah, cool. I thought, I thought so too. Um, but uh, yeah, so Brandon, you know, saying like, you know, he likes how like Yoda sort of like almost taunting Luke in a way of, right. Of like saying like, Ray has everything, you know, needed from the books, like the books <laughs> themselves, like actually has the book. She literally has everything that the library contained. Um, yeah, on her ship. At her, at her day. And, and like, <laughs> you read them. 
given given She's like Luke's <laughs> right, and given Luke's admission that he didn't read them, like potentially could then learn even more than Luke knew about the Jedi in the long run. Um, so yeah, I like that. That's definitely. Uh, uh, I, I think that supports Dom your your thesis that um, maybe letting maybe it's not letting the past die, but learning the right way to embrace it or or the right way to um you know move forward acknowledging the past but but realizing that there's still things to be done going forward as well can Where i, I oh sorry go ahead I was Kelly. Say something really, really short. um and i mean it's not i think there's a message of not letting go of the past but um but also maybe redefining it if we take it into a meta textual um, if we take that into account of, you know, this is the Star Wars that you know and love, but this is different and we are redefining some, certain things in a certain way and we're letting go of some things and we're going forward um, with some others. Um, so that's also a, a way that I chose to see it. Maybe not being beholden to it, not mm-hmm. unthinkingly, unquestioningly carrying on with things um just because that's what it has always been um can i ask since we're talking about the past um so ray says that she has seen kylo ren's future am i dreaming that she says that right Mm -hmm. he says that of her as well yeah so so like how much is ray seeing visions of the future affecting her decisions and how much should it factor into our judgments of her decisions or our perceptions of her decisions like when she goes to the to kylo ren's ship in her little coffin pod um you know is this something that can we kind of rule out hubris because she may have you know seen something that made her think that this is this is the path to this future that she has seen or, or this path away from it. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It just, it's like this complicating factor when a character has this information about the, potentially about the future, if that's like her kind of force specialty or whatever, seeing the future, um, you know, how much is this factoring into to her decision sure. making right now? Well, and, in Star Wars characters, uh, but well, I was just, I mean, I'm to quote Yoda always in motion. The future is right. Like, the the what Ray sees, and she even gives some specifics about what she sees. Right, it's um, that that Ren doesn't kneel before Snoke. Although then, like the first thing he does when they walk in is like he kneels down. So like she's clearly skipping over that part of the future. <laughs> um, but then also also um, that he would stand with her, which does happen. And and so like if you look at like you, you know Kylo Ren killing Snoke and then, you know, fighting with the guards and stuff like, like that stuff does happen. It's just like, well, but then there's other pieces too, which I think again, like, and I'm just thinking of this now, like is a really nice parallel to the way that we get the past revealed to us through Luke and Kylo Ren's renditions of that scene in the hut or whatever at the, at the training temple. Like there's, we see pieces of it, but that doesn't mean, you know, how it's all going to play out. It just means that, like, I think we can believe Ray that she saw those things. It's just like, there's more context than she knew about. 
also think seeing the future and thinking that you alone can determine the future and you, that you all, your head is always in the future, that's actually one of the biggest sources of failure and hubris in the saga. You go back to episode three, the source of Anakin's downfall was the fact that he saw Padme dying in childbirth and his reaction wasn't, okay, I'm gonna keep my cool and see what happens. He wanted he he, he went to crazy extremes to try to prevent that, and that we, we all know that how that turned out. And in episode in Empire, Luke sees the future of his friends, and Yoda warns him, you know, don't go. And it's basically his version of this won't turn out the way you think it will, and it doesn't, and he fails, and he loses a hand. So I don't I don't I don't think Luke was the most effective teacher on Octo, and he didn't. He didn't properly warn Ray about the, the dangers of visions of the future the way that Yoda did in the Empire. But still, there is this common thread of of hubris and thinking that you are the master of destiny being being interlinked. You know, as, as Yoda said, you know, focus on the here and now. The uh, flashback. Oh, oh sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to mention the flashbacks and how much flack that this movie has taken um, over its use of, of flashbacks and especially kind of point of view dependent flashbacks. Because mm. um, I don't know. It, I, I didn't. They didn't. I didn't have a problem with them, but I didn't have a lot of the problems that I've heard um, people people talk about in this film. I don't mean to to jump the gun. I'd love to hear what people didn't like in the film at some point, but if, if you have a slide for that, Curtis, I'll wait. Well, so I, I do have a few things, but we can, we can, are, uh, should, do we need to let this slide die? Is that what we're saying? Um, cause, cause uh, I think, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I said kill it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, I don't have a slide for this in particular, but, um, Kate Neville had brought up, I believe, uh, or I think it was her actually, now that I'm going back, um, trying to find the comment um, about uh, what she sees as some of the logical dissonance in the film. Um, and I think these are more around like the the, the science fiction aspects and, and the technology and that kind of thing. So like the use of hyperspace as a weapon, um, you know, dropping bombs in space. Uh, another one that- Empire, I, by the way. Yes, well, that's right. And so um, another one that I've heard about is is the ability to track through hyperspace, through light speed, um, which happens in A New Hope. Like mm -hmm. Vader puts a tracking device. Now it's a little different because there's like an active tracking device on the ship, on the Millennium Falcon, and that's how they find Yavin 4 um, as a base. So yeah, I, I mean, we can talk through some of those pieces. Um, yeah, Dom, you brought up, they the imperial bombers are bombing the asteroid in you know empire when when they're hiding out in the big wormhole so like the literal hole for a worm not a space wormhole but um the uh yeah i don't i mean i, I any any thoughts there those things did not bother me as much but i know it did bother some people so just kind of throwing out those examples or or any others of like technology or kind of the, the the things that might have pulled some people out of um you know the the secondary realism of the world there i always like a little bad science in my star wars 
um, I just feel like it just, it feels cozy. It feel, I feel at home with bad science. It reminds me of the parsecs and it makes me happy. George Lucas was asked about this once and uh, actually talking to Matt Stover who wrote the novelization for Revenge of the Sith. And Matt Stover said, well, you know, in the, in the Revenge of the Sith, there are elevators and when they lose, gra when they lose gravity, the elevator um, like starts falling down. And Matt Stover said, well, it's not really how gravity works. And Lucas was like, it's, that's kind of the point. And part of, part of the experience of Star Wars is just being in the moment, just suspending your disbelief and just kind of accepting that the physics we have in our world work in space somehow and treating it like a World War II space fantasy pistache. That, you know, so like Lucas, Lucas he was, just, he was aware of this stuff. Like he knew how physics worked in space. He just, that, that's not what he's going for. Yeah, for me, that doesn't pull me out so much, um, probably because I'm not a scientist and I don't, I'll notice other things, but probably not that sort of stuff. Although my dad, who is a um, physicist, uh, was definitely muttering things to me um, when we saw it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but for me, what pulls me out is not the science within the film, but the technology making it. I just am not... I know CGI was used extremely well in this film um, in certain ways. Uh, and I know that, I mean, like Puppet Yoda, yay. But, um, but I also like, I thought it pulled me out a lot with Snoke. Um, I just sort mm -hmm. of despise everything about Snoke and why you had to have a CGI character mm. who sits down the whole time. <laughs> just kind of like for, for purely just because we can. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there were some things um, that were done just, and that's just, that's my own preference with general movies is um, CGI and action. And there was a lot of that in this film. Um, but that's not its fault for being Star Wars. That's just general modern films for me. Um, but that's, those are the big things that pull me out. At least it's not CGI actual human beings that you've seen in movies before. That, yeah. for me, that pulled me out way more. At least Snoke, I can understand the difficulty of trying to achieve any CGI performance that has that amount of screen time. Like, the more you spend, the more time you spend on it, the the harder it gets. But um, at least he's a kind of non-human or more than human character, you know, it's not the same as um, trying to fully recreate a human performance mm -hmm. for me. It's no yeah. Dane the Hobbit. Mm -hmm. The door. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, or, you know, Tarkin in Rogue One. Um, yeah. that, that was, that's like the big example for me. And I know like they had Leia at the end, but that's like for like three seconds. So like that didn't bother me as much, but but right. when you're seeing that's, that's kind of what I was yeah. thinking. But I think there was in general an, a pleasant use of practical effects in this. Like you said, mm -hmm. like the puppetry and the fact that like from what I can tell a lot of the creatures were built practically with, you know, the whatever the giant thing is that he milks that was like a real like the Star Siren kind of puppet and everything that like I I think the when you can do it that way, there is just a practical reality to it that serves the movie well. Absolutely, and it could have been so much worse. And I, 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 I hate that I'm fixated on it, but I—that's just one of my personal 
buttons, but um, I thought they're, I mean, and visually like the starships, which of course are CGI um, are beautiful. Um, so there's lots of, lots of ways they used it in just stunning ways in this film, so. I'm generally okay with the, the effects in the film. The one thing that roasts me the wrong way, and this, this is an issue a bit for me in Force Awakens as well, is the creature designs just aren't doing it for me. And uh, I, I don't mean this as any offense to uh, Kat, but like they look like Doctor Who aliens. Like the, the, the aliens <laughs> in the Canto Bite Casino, um, they don't look like what I expect from Star Wars aliens. And for some reason, they're not using the traditional Star Wars aliens we saw in the sequels and prequels all that often. Um, uh, I, I, I thought that I thought the I actually like the Porks as a creature design, and I like the other aliens on Octo, Luke's planet. But just the Canto Bite aliens seemed a bit too silly and goofy to me. And the Canto Bite, the everything about Canto Bite was very, very like Earth to me. Like, the, like there's some things where like. I can suspend my disbelief and, and be like, yes, this is a fantasy world, like kind of like ours in some ways and kind of like, but like the casino scene with, for me was just very much, it was very too hitting too close to home. And then you have this, these weird CGI characters that are very not, I don't know. It just, it didn't really meld with me a, a lot of, can, you know, Canto Bite. Well, I know. Ross said that he, he, when we were on Canto Bite, he felt like, uh, we had fallen into the capital from the Hunger Games. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, that is kind of. <laughs> I heard I think, um, Curtis in the or somebody somebody sent the um, Rebel Force Radio podcast. Um, yeah. The two the two guests that they had, which I listened to most of, but they I was interested to hear how much they compared the Canto Bite scenes to like a third or second or third tier prequel planet. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I, it was not meant to be complimentary, you know, uh, it was, uh, it, it, yeah, there was, they were, they were really, really hard on that whole sequence yeah. of Canto Bite. It felt very like prequel, like in, yeah. It, yeah, I felt like prequel territory for sure. Um, but the, the, the message of everything of Canto Bite for me goes down to, um, Rose taking off the, 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 the rain, I guess, or the deceit yes. of right. the animal. Like, and that's her, she says, you know, it's, it's worth it now. That's how I feel, you know, for all of the Canto Bite, you know, mistakes or get the clumsiness of, of the actual scene. It's worth it for me for that message. So I think there's two things there, because I, I know a lot of people have a very strong reaction to, or, or at least a lot of the reactions that I've read. Um, there seems to be a lot of disfavor with the whole Canto Bite plot and the, you know, Master Code Breaker, MacGuffin, you know, trail and all of that. Um, and and so watching it the most recent time um, on Sunday, like I was, I was kind of watching for that. And like, I actually, like they don't really spend out of a two and a half hour movie. They don't actually spend that much time on Canto Bite. There's like two like longish scenes Right. One where they kind of like arrive and are going through the casino and then one where they're escaping. And like, that's really it. Um, Not to say that there wasn't stuff that could have been cut out of some of that, because I do feel like some of the like the father's, you know, trampling the casino is like, oh, look, we're destroying a lot of rich people's stuff. And like, like that to me was like, okay, like you could have done like one thing there, but like you don't need like four minutes of that, maybe. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, I think so. Like, there's the there's the removing of the rain on the father, which I think is important. 
symbolically, right? Because of Rose's comments about like, like look deeper, look beyond sort of the flash and the, the lights of the casino and see kind of who are the people behind it. Um, but also giving, giving of her ring with the rebellion symbol on it to the boy in the stable, um, which, you know, then we come back to sort of unexpectedly that, okay, so there's three scenes that can't bite. I forgot about that last one, but like, um, you know, coming back to that sort of unexpectedly at the end. Cause I think, I think that's the, the taking off of the rain from the father and, and the, the saddle and all of that is, is kind of the, what they're doing sort of symbolically at the end there of like, you know, showing, showing that stable boy and his friends, like there is, there is a way to like remove the reins of kind of this war machine, the, you know, uh, Star Wars universe equivalent of the military industrial complex or whatever you want to call that. Um, that's sort of, you know, funding this wealth in one area, but then having this great disparity with all of these people who we're, we're not like, I'm not quite clear. Like, are they like, are these kids slaves? Cause like, I mean, we've had slavery before Anakin was a slave. Like it is, that's sort of the subtext, but it's never really stated outright, whether it's like, like actual slavery or just like, or, or, or I don't mean like just poverty, but like, like, is it, is it a poverty thing where they're kind of like doing, you, you know, like they're in this situation and that's all they really have available to them and, and that kind of thing. Um, the fact checkers on the case. Yes. They are, they are street urchin children abandoned on Cantanica by losing gamblers. Yeah. So they're slaves who are abandoned by uh, parents who can't pay their gambling bills. Which is kind of what Ray is, it sounds like. Pretty much, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's one of them. Yeah. Right? Sold for drinking money is what yeah. Kylo says. I mean, how, how much do we believe him? Um, you know, because that's in the moment of trying to convince her to join him. But, yeah. Like, I, 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 I was entertained by Canto Bite. Like, I was, able to put, I was able to turn my inner child on. And I like, there's part of me that liked likes the fact that it mirrors the prequels because I'm somebody who believes that the prequels are part of Star Wars. So seeing prequel material in the sequels is kind of nice to feel like they're all part of one same story. My my big issue with the Canto Bite sequence was actually kind of rose. And I hate to say this, but partly because a lot of the themes only came out in exposition. It's very much a mm -hmm. tell not show uh, theme. And that, like, Rose is the one who says, oh, these are war profiteers. This is why we should think this is bad. And I just, I wish they had found a way to to show that, where it wasn't just, or, or, or and DJ later on, when they're on the ship, DJ's going, oh, how, oh, moral ambiguity is great because they sell to this guy and they sell to this side. It's, it's, it's okay, but it's like, show that to me like make me feel make me care about that and feel it instead of just have a have a character spout off some dialogue about that so that was more my issue with this, the whole cancel bite stuff up yeah yeah it, it wasn't subtle and i that for me that was another huge fault of this film is i loved the messages and i loved a lot of what it did i mm -hmm. thought its execution in a lot of things was clumsy and not subtle and mm -hmm. too in your face um but I like the messages a lot. Um, but I agree completely. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I, I want to just third that um, and say, I think, I think that is probably what made the scene um, really awkward for me um, because of, obviously the prequels don't bother me. Um, although Kat, I will say that sometimes when I'm watching Doctor Who, some of the aliens and stuff, I'm like, oh, that's so prequels. It's <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> like a lot of like the, yeah, anyway, but that's part of why I like it. <laughs> um, you know, and ourselves too. It's, so. it's leaning into a, a, a level of camp, which is maybe beyond what, I mean, there's a difference between and knowingly and intentionally a difference between a BBC budget and like industrial and magic, right? Like <laughs> and it's a fine line, but there is a difference. So maybe there's this like bleed over there. But, but is there any funnier scene than Yoda hitting R2D2 with a stick? Like, <laughs> I mean, like let's not, let's not raise Star Wars too high up. Like it was pretty darn campy to begin with. Like it's campy, but Luke played that so straight. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll say that another um, problem that I had, like, I don't know enough about, obviously, if I love the prequels, I don't really know enough about CGI to really <laughs> throw stones. But um, but I, there were definitely some um, <clears throat> narrative issues that I, I felt like, um, I mean, like when Rey and Kylo Ren k- kill Snoke and all those guards... And then, you know, she she zips off, which we don't really see how she does that. You know, she ends up in Snoke's uh, escape pod, you know, which good for her, but we don't really see her get there. Um, and then Kylo Ren just wakes up to Hux, you know, asking what happened. And then Hux just believes him mm. that Rey killed does all he know? people by herself. I don't think and he has a moment to. He just has I mean. Like, Oh, I don't. I don't know that Hux believes him. Like Kylo chokes him into submission. But yeah. why is? He, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I guess is this guy just like the most powerful sheriff in town? Is that why he's still in charge? I just, I didn't really understand how you could get away with killing the supreme leader and having a very flimsy excuse, or you know, blaming it on somebody else, and then you know, yet he's still able to command this army. Is it just because he's powerful? Time to throw a snow grenade in here. I this is I think this is why I think the film did need an explanation, however however brief, of who Snoke was. Because mm. when that happens, when Ben kills him, I don't know what that means. I don't mean would know what it means for Ben or the First Order. And I was yeah, I was sitting there like, why is everybody okay that Ben Solo is now the supreme leader of the First Order? Like if, if Hitler or Mao when Hitler, Mao, Stalin, when those larger than life charismatic figures died. There was chaos in those political systems. That you know, Germany was a different case, but when Stalin and Mao died, the the the, the, the repercussions lasted for years. Um, and you had a lot of infighting at the upper levels. And yes, Ben Solo is the big bad guy who can use the force and choke Hux, but it just it seemed like a very easy transition. It's, and yeah, just giving Snoke some context might have helped with that. Is but is this like so Kylo's ascendancy is a field promotion, essentially, though, right? Like, like when I, we don't know where the First Order stronghold is at this point, but this is like of the people who survived, however many Star Destroyers get destroyed themselves, mm-hmm. like Kylo's like the current strongest person, like right there and then. I guess the question remains, like, is he able to consolidate that power when they meet up with like 
whoever's still back at home base, wherever home base is. It's not Starkiller base because that's gone. But like, like whatever the first order base is, like, can Kylo Ren keep that power? I see this as just like, like I don't know, like we don't know how many people survive from Snoke's ships, but like, there's not more than like what half a dozen or or eight like at at walkers and like one transport ship that he has so it's not like he's got like a huge army right there with him at the time either so i i I don't know like like yes i see what you're saying like is he the strongest person like kind of he is in the moment at least and he's at least strong enough to like get hux to follow him and like that goes back to snoke's comments about like you know a well a well-whipped cur you know keeping him at your side like is going to do wonders for your leadership capabilities. So. Well, and it's part of that about, is that part of what lies behind the kind of buffoonery of Hux throughout, you know, I mean, he was pretty ridiculous in the first one, but like they really drive that home in this, especially in that first scene of if he's the only one who comes across this scene of, you know, uh, you know, Kylo's sort of taking over. It's not like he's this super savvy and strong leader himself who's really going to challenge him. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason of, of kind of taking him down even some more pegs. Um, and Eric in the comments here, I mean, brings up a point that I've thought many times since seeing the film, um, seeing the last Jedi is that like, they don't establish the emperor. Like, I don't, do we, like, they never even say Palpatine, right? Other than he's the emperor. Okay, so he's the guy on the throne. Like, That's actually a lot more information than we know about Snoke. I mean, I kind of, this is kind of a pithy. Snoke's a supreme leader. But what does that mean? Like, I I know what an emperor is. Um, Uh, And actually, A New Hope is actually really smart in how it establishes the world building. Um, It uses terms like emperor and senate that we're familiar with. And also, especially in the late 70s, most viewers would have known uh, classical history. So Emperor Senate, okay, think ancient Rome. This is like ancient Rome where the Senate's not as powerful um, and the emperor is the real power. Also the uniforms look like Nazi German uh, officer uniforms, stormtroopers. So we think, okay, this is an empire. It's like Nazi Germany. It's evil. Okay, got it. With with the First Order, we don't really have those cues as much. Like, you know, I don't know what a supreme leader is. Is is the first order a cult? Is it an insurgent group? Is it like a rival foreign nation? Um, and maybe that's just more world building than we're gonna get out of the movies. But like, I just I feel like I don't like I don't know. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know if Snoke is supposed to be some deformed human or an alien. You know, there's just like a lot of things that where it's like we knew the emperor was human. We knew that he was the emperor. Like, and we knew based on his relationship with Vader that he was a pretty scary guy because Vader was a scary guy and he was scared of the emperor. Whereas Ben Solo isn't that scary. So his being scared of Snoke doesn't establish him as much. So I don't know, I guess I, 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 I'm sure we'll get like Snoke the novel sometime in the next year, but I still feel like the film could have done a bit more world building. But are we ever going to get his robe at Hot Topic? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. That was a real question. And it's the first. There. Um, I was going to ask, does anyone remember what Snoke actually does call uh, Kylo heir, um, heir apparent? He says, 
He says heir apparent to the, he, I don't know if he says heir apparent to the First Order or heir apparent to Darth Vader's. I thought it was Lord Vader. I thought it was Vader. It's just heir apparent to, to Vader. Mm -hmm. I thought so. Which, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a comment here, I guess kind of along that line um, from James Stevens saying, Snoke is stoking the darkness in Kylo in order to bring about the counter light. So is his role by intention not so much about his own power as manipulating or bringing about power in the next generation or in other people? Um, he's, uh, James finishes by saying, if, is he not dark enough to bring about what he wants? Is he sort of neutral evil and he's sort of provoking greater evil in other people? Seems that way to me. Um, we're given, like Dom said, we're given such little information about him. The only thing we see that he's really, really good at is manipulation. Um, and I guess the force. But that's all I think we know, right? I agree we needed more information. We needed just, just a little more information on Snoke. Yeah. And my I just want to be clear. I'm not like trying to say that like we don't want more information about Snoke. I'm just, but I do think like, like I agree with you, Dom, that like there are a lot maybe more well-known parallels to the Emperor and the way things are set up in A New Hope. Um, so that when we do finally see the Emperor later, um, we're kind of already well-established as to like what his power is. Um, but I don't know. I feel like, like I always... I've always thought of the first order and, and I'm way behind on like the uh, canonical novels and everything else to go. Like I, I wasn't able to read the Leia um, thing leading up to this and, and any of the other stuff that might bring in stuff about Snoke. So there might even be other stuff there to talk about, but I, I don't know. I, I was thinking like, I always thought of the first order as like, the third right like it's it's like a similar type of name supreme leader is just like like i don't know that there's a big difference between that and effort it's like the guy at the top right like whatever whatever structure there is underneath that whether it's an empire or a kingdom or a cult or whatever you might have he's the dude he's you know the one that's the highest and i i guess like what do you need to know really more than that um I don't know. That's just the way that I took it. But I, I can understand why people like want more. Um, so just. Well, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of this. But one thing, just very briefly, like on some Twitter comment, I don't know who said this, so I don't know who to credit, but um, that made the analogy of um, Nazis to neo-Nazis. Like is, is this new first order defined by its sort of nostalgia for an older empire, not that it's necessarily, well, it, it, it's trying to recreate it, but it kind of by definition can't. And so it's more about their romanticizing of, of that and, you know, trying to bring out their ideologies. But I guess that's why in the end, the real villain isn't Snoke, it's Kylo. Like Snoke is more just a, a figurehead for the old empire, whereas Kylo's the true sort of center of their ideology. Well, I mean, I, just, I think that's part of the reason why I'm saying there's not enough world building because 
Curtis and Cat just both offered two very different interpretations of the First Order, and that the Third Reich was a, a, a major world power with a lot of territory and a large industrial base. Neo-Nazis are fringe groups who you know, are marginalized actors, sometimes engage in terrorist actions. Another possibility might be a group like ISIS, which controls some territory, but it isn't the nation state. Not that the movie has to get into all these little details, but like, I, I just, I don't, I don't have a sense of like whether the first order controls planets. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, are they like neo-Nazis would be like a group that doesn't control territory. Well, um, the opening words of the crawl is the first yeah. order reigns. Well, they, they do at the beginning of the last Jedi because Starkiller base and they, they blew up uh, the Republic. And after that, they started controlling planets. But I don't, right. I don't have a sense of like whether they controlled a bunch of planets before and that was, that was a new development, or if they just had they had this large, also building Starkiller base, that's a huge well, undertaking. You know, and they must have had some resources for that. And and this is where maybe my extended universe reading comes into, because I, I, oh, I yeah, always sort of equated it very much into um, kind of where the, the Thrawn trilogy begins, of like, it's, it's the remnants of the Empire yeah. pulling back together into some sort of organization, but it's yeah, like it's not, and I, I didn't mean to necessarily equate the First Order with the Third Reich. I just think that like they, like the two names kind of evoke similar meanings to me. And there's also like the whole like like New Order idea. And, and so like, I don't think it's any one of those things. I don't necessarily think it's just a terrorist thing. I don't think it's maybe maybe as well organized as like a Third Reich, but like maybe it falls somewhere in between on that spectrum. But I'm just saying like for me, that's the sort of idea that it evoked. And, and I'm sure that I'm coming to it with a lot of that baggage uh, just because I like the Thrawn stories and I like oh, yeah. Thrawn. I'm glad they brought him back. Into the universe. But um, that's a whole other conversation we could have. <laughs> In terms okay. of Snoke, though, oh, one thing, uh, I think Emily or Kelly, uh, Kelly said something about like how the light and the dark balance. And one thing that my, what I took was that Snoke and Luke kind of balanced each other in the dark and the light. And then mm -hmm. Kylo and Ray balanced each other in the dark and the light. So in this movie, both Snoke, Snoke died and then soon after Luke died. So you preserve the balance. And then in the next movie, we'll see what happens with Ray and Kylo. But that's, that was my understanding. Like part of the reason Snoke was rising is because Luke, the light side was rising in Luke. So you need a, a dark side counterbalance. But is Luke actually like that counterbalance if he's disconnected from the force this whole time? <coughs> so is he disconnected? Can you be disconnected? Can you use the force to disconnect yourself from the force? Yeah. I don't I know. Mean, I think there's evidence to him reawaking himself to the force. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know if, if the force is what's between everything, how, how much can you disconnect? Um, but I think he disconnects using it. I mean, just like, like it can awaken in someone, could someone actively put it back to sleep? Maybe. I mean, you know, Ray hasn't been using the force all her life, or maybe she has in small ways, but not in not in the ways that she's doing now, you know. So maybe Luke's Luke's, you know, real failure is that that he has sort of turned his back on this this power inside himself and this you know, this connection to, to other beings 
I mean, that, you know, he's alone on his little island, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's physically isolated. And so it seems like, you know, that dialogue about him cutting himself off from the force, you know, signifies that he's spiritually isolated as well. There's a, one reason I believe Luke is disconnected from the force in the beginning of this movie. He does not know that Han is dead. Mm-hmm. If he'd been connected to the force, yeah. Even if he even if he couldn't detect Han in the force, he would have detected Leia and he would have detected her anguish at Han's death and he doesn't. So I think that's so I think he really was disconnected mm-hmm. in a pretty profound way. Yeah, Kelly in the chat just uh there's another Kelly in the chat and she just said the exact same thing that um uh not knowing about Han and not being aware that Leia is trying to find him are yeah. the kind of big pieces of evidence against that. Yep. Yeah, because that connection is the connection with Leia is the very first, isn't it? The very first thing that uh, hits him when he connects. He says Leia, and Leia yep. wakes up, and yeah, it's so it wakes her up, and she says Luke. But I don't, I don't like, I don't know, because like, I don't think you like, like the Force isn't just like a telephone, like, like it's not like pulling up your text from like all your friends and like seeing like whatever or social media, like. I don't know that just because like Han died that Luke would have necessarily detected that. Would he have detected it in Leia? Like probably there's a stronger case for that, but, but like Vader, you know, when he first encounters uh, in, in a new hope, like Obi-Wan comes to the Death Star and he's like, Oh, it's a presence I haven't felt in years. And it's like, well, you know, can you backtrack that and say, well, through the force, he should have been able to feel that he was on tattooing the whole time. And, like I don't I don't know that just because somebody dies or someone you know like that there's that level of sort of granularity or or uh, I don't know what the right word is but a bit ability to sort of the sensitivity I guess in the force to be able to feel to sort of any particular death like that that's just my thought so I don't I don't know like I I so this brings up like another aspect of the movie that some people talk about is is the idea of you know are we introducing new force powers are and new concepts of what the force is um and all of that and um i do have a slide on that um (laughs) because as luke said the force does not belong to the jedi and as i've added or the film only fans um there are things that happen with the force that Yes, they didn't happen in any previous film, but that doesn't mean there's not precedent precedence for them um, and other stuff. So I've pulled up a few things that um, we talk about here. One of them is um, very clearly in reference to um, what I've been taken to calling Super Leia, um, but then a few other things as well. Um, and so I'll just open it up. I don't. I mean, we can talk about these ones. We can talk about other things, or keep talking about. Luke and the force and can he cut himself off? Um, but just wanted to kind of transition into that thought too. Um, kind of, kind of similar. This is like the opposite side of the technology science coin, right? Like what does the magic of the force allow? Um, and can you really say it can like, is there, are, are there limitations at all? And like, is anything, you know, within the realm of possibility or not? So oh, actually, this, uh, I, I, oh, go ahead, Don. So this slide, it's, it's, this actually connects to Curtis's last point as well, in that uh, if you've ever played the Knights of the Old Republic 2 video game, which is excellent, by the way, 
it's it's part of the old expanded universe, so it's no longer canon. You see a lot of new force powers, and one of the things that happens is the main character is a female Jedi who's cut off from the force, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I believe it's Luke. Luke, it's, you know, Luke, it was possible for Luke to be cut off from the force because I've seen it before. It also brings up the larger point for why these new force powers didn't disturb me, because if you are you know, if you've seen this stuff in the expanded universe or the old video games or even the newer books and the canon of the cartoons, like they go into a lot of stuff that isn't never addressed in the movie. So I guess I've been acclimatized to it a bit more than maybe some other fans were. And I, I do want to point out that these are all canonical references here. But yeah, like if you start pulling in legends and EU stuff, I mean, um, like what what are those creatures that like repel the force in the Thrawn yeah. books? Like there's... Yeah. Yeah. So like there's there's a lot of other stuff that like goes even way beyond maybe some of the things that people are complaining about. And Luke does force projections in the Dark Empire comics, just like he yep. did in this movie. So yeah. Well, I just wanted to throw out the rhetorical question. Like, I know there are issues of canon and there are issues of consistency and um not letting the magic get too powerful to sort of you know, remove all of the limitations on the story and everything. But um, just from like a knee jerk reaction point of view, I'm not sure why um, in a continuing story where you're getting new installments of something that's, you know, ongoing and expanding and introducing new ideas that uh, to some people, the introduction of new things, you know, new abilities or concepts seems inherently problematic. Um, it seems to me like that would be largely the point of having an ongoing story is to not just play with the tools that you already have, but to occasionally add and introduce some new ones. That's crazy talk, Kat. <laughs> crazy talk. <laughs> um, Kelly in the chat also brings up um, a reference that I missed of in Rebels, Kanan being pushed out uh, an airlock by Maul mm -hmm. and surviving. So um talking about Jedi in space, uh, which is not a parallel to pigs in space at all. I did not think of that one bit when I was doing that. For me, I and it's not so much the, the new or slightly different um, force powers that we're seeing, and I don't know any of, like I read uh, the first couple Thrawn books and um, like a couple of years ago, um, but beyond that, I, none of the, well, some, actually some of the books, recent books and stuff like that, but none of nothing like Clone Wars and all that sort of stuff. So all of this is is new to me, and I'm I didn't know that you know there's examples of this sort of stuff before. Um, but it makes a lot of sense to me. For me, it's again it's the execution in this in this movie. Um, Leia existing in in space um, <laughs> is a little hard to swallow. Um, but again, I'll I'll swallow it. It's fine. Um, it's it's Star Wars. It's you know magic. Um, fine. <laughs> but. I, I just, this is the first time we see Leia doing the Force. This is the first time we see Leia, like, well, beyond slight Force sensitivity, this is her action on the Force, and this is the very first time you see it, and that is hard for me to believe. Um, and so, and, and it's hard for me to believe Rey, you know, she starts off telling Luke, oh, the Force is, uh, you can control people and you can lift rocks. And then Luke has given her very little instruction. And then the end of the movie is her, oh, it's lifting rocks. <laughs> For me, like, it's the execution. It's like, it's, I, can, I can, all of this is believable to me 
but the ease of which these characters are using these extremely powerful tools that they haven't quite learned to, to, to use is a little strange. I didn't mind Leia using the force to get herself back to the ship. Um, partly because I thought, I didn't see this as the first time we've seen Leia use the force. Um, all of her connections with Luke were always uh, uh, tapping into the force on her part. And, um, and I also thought that this was a nice, I know maybe a stretch, but, um, but I thought it was a nice callback to the way she used the force um, in empire to locate Luke, you know, when he's hanging there with one hand and she, I mean, that's pretty overt, you know, she says, she tells, you know, them where to fly the ship to pick him up. So so I didn't see this that is the very first time. Obviously it's much more powerful, but um uh yeah, so it it really didn't bother me. I was I was kind of more of the opinion of like, hey, Leia's using a, the force, it's about darn time, you know. Well, and it may be the first time we see her take direct action, but this is 30 years later, right? I mean, do you do you fill in the blank of things might have changed in the last 30 years. There's been some practice. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe people would appreciate that having been adjusted a little sooner before we see her do it. But, um, but I don't know that that's unbelievable necessarily. I didn't think so, it was, oh, <laughs> I was gonna say like, I, the, the 30 year gap to me didn't escape me, but I think it's really strange for the audience to see that be her first. and. You know, she has this incredible, you know, I know the force isn't a weapon, but um, they have to get Luke back because of his force, his powerful use of the force. If Leia's got that, how is she using it? Uh, you know, are we just, if she's been learning and training and all this sort of stuff, has she been using it to the resistance, you know, to help the resistance in any way? Or is it just, I don't know, for me, like there was more questions that I wanted answered. So my, my own my own headcanon for some of that and feel free to adopt it or reject it as um, you like. But so I think I think one of the things so I haven't I'm severely behind, as I've mentioned, in all my like canonical book reading. But one of the books I have read and really enjoyed is um, Bloodline, which focuses on Leia's um, New Republic uh political stuff. And um, you and I have to have a conversation about that book at some point, but because um, I'd love to hear like a lot of your thoughts on it. But I believe if I remember correctly, like a lot of that in there was that she was sort of doing at one point, some training with Luke and, and getting, you know, more acclimated to the force, but like, there was a lot of other stuff taking up her time too. So I don't, I don't think we're ever going to like, like, she never gets to the point where like, She's full on Jedi. She's, you know, done all this, but she, she has had some training. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, if you don't know that, if you haven't read that, like maybe it's a little jarring. I do think like in those moments, like, like so you, you get like the close up of like her and then Ren and then like the other TIE fighters and they shoot. And it's like, like my own headcanon there is like, she understands what's coming. Maybe she has like a slight into the future, like vision of what's about to happen. And like uses that to like do a sort of like deep Jedi calm, like Jedi, uh, not Jedi breathing, but like what's like a Jedi uh, hibernation sleep mode type of thing where when she gets like that, like 
that's all precedent. Like Tom was saying, like that sort of stuff happens in the, you know, extended universe. People survive, you know, being out in space and that kind of thing. Like maybe it's just a matter of that acclimation. Like, yeah, like if you've only ever seen the movies and or have mostly only seen the movies, um, you know, maybe that's jarring because you're just not used to that type of thing being possible. And I think it, it would speak to Leia's strength and sort of more instinctual uh, use of the force with like a little bit of training, which I feel like is where Ray also kind of is at this point. Like Ray maybe has even had a little more training now after her three lessons with Luke than Leia sort of does. But like um, there's, there's a raw power there. And that raw power is talked about both in terms of Kylo and Ray a lot. But like, I think we're also sort of meant to see that Leia has that too, not just from this movie, but also from, you know, previous instances, like being able to have that connection, which is only audio, but is sort of the precursor to forced time, you know, that we have now, right? It's like the, yeah. the pre-smartphone version of phones, right? Like it's it's mm-hmm. what Leia was able to do just sort of naturally without any kind of training before. And, and now having a little bit of training and maybe she's been meditating, practicing for the last 30 years, she can at least do that much to, you know, in an emergency, save herself for a few seconds in space. That's my headcanon. Reject it or alter it as you desire. But Well, it might also be, you know, as you're talking, uh, Curtis, I'm remembering in the Leia novel, um, she actually uses the force a couple times. She She's um, doing some target practice uh, with her little boyfriend dude. And um, she's like really good, you know, at hitting targets. And he's like, whoa, you know. And then later, I think she even like uses the force pretty overtly to save him from some precarious situation. I, it's been a while since I've read it. Um, I yeah. I so haven't so read the Leia novel, but yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I haven't read the Leia novel, but um, Kelly in the chat brings up the Aftermath trilogy where there are some snippets as well as Leia. And it, I might be confusing the two even that I, it's been a while since I've read the aftermath. I don't even know if I've read the third one actually, but um, I, yeah. So there is at least some precedence in canon novels and stories of Leia using the force. So, you know, whether that satisfies you as a movie viewer and, you know, whatever, like, like I can get why people might not, might be like, Oh, why can she do that? But I'm also personally not that disturbed by it. Well, I think there's also the issue that Kelly was bringing up, which is that we just, there's this 30-year gap. We just don't know about, we don't know much about that 30-year gap for all the characters. Like, we don't know what happened to Han exactly and why he became the deadbeat dad. You know, we don't know why the New Republic failed. If you don't read Bloodlines, which you should, it's probably the most essential book in the New Star's canon. You don't know why Leia is no longer in politics. And I think there's just kind of a point where, like, you accept that or you don't. Like, there's just stuff you, you know, we're used in Star Wars to seeing the most important moments of these characters' lives. Like, in the prequels, you saw pretty much, like, the highlights of Anakin's fall of the dark side. And, and so, um, you just kind of accept that or you don't. The only time when Force powers for me, though, really are uh, break the story is when they, um, when they're incons- inconsistently used. And more of a Clone Wars issue, but, like, sometimes you'll see characters who are usually able to levitate many things at a time and then just conveniently struggle to lift two people who are about to fall off the side of a cliff. They only have enough power to lift one person and the other person dies. It's like, well, you know, we've seen that character lift things before, like lift many other people before. Like why, 
why the other guy have to die? So it's more for me. It's more of an issue of consistency than than new powers. Well, speaking of of canon and raw force power and consistency, uh, one thing that was has been curiously absent from the sequel movies is midichlorians, and I think mm. they've done a great job of killing that horror and without explicitly doing so. Uh, and I think Ray is a great example of how, you know, the fact that her parents are nobodies and she's a nobody, but she's really powerful. And there's been all of this, uh, you know, speculation of, oh, is she related to somebody so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And I think uh, probably one of my favorite things about about the sequels is how they've they've built that up and then totally stomped on it. Well, and Anakin was a nobody too. So it's not like we're only going back one generation to like see, like, it's not like the Skywalkers have become this dynasty. I mean, I guess it remains to see, to see what Kylo Ren does, but like, it's not like it's that far back that you have to go to find like another strong person in the force who was a nobody. Um, and as far as midichlorians go, like, do like does anybody ever tell Luke about midichlorian? Like, I wonder if that's like a deliberate decision. I mean, obviously this is retconning, but like, is that like a des- deliberate decision by Obi Wan to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to even bring up the whole <laughs> midichlorian test thing to Luke. That was dumb. We relied on it way too much, and look mm-hmm. what happened. Like, yeah. like you yeah. could see a, a canonical argument. Oh, is it? Uh, it's in, it's in, it's in no, it's in one of those <laughs> books in the Jedi Temple that Luke wanted to burn. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> But he didn't read them, right? No, he didn't read them. He didn't no. read them. Well, I always wondered if anybody ever explained to Luke that the Jedi were a celibate order. <laughs> like, you know, like, did that never get passed on? Did he just kind of assume mm. that? Did he, you know? People generally forget that part of the... not, not in the extended universe, they didn't. I'm pretty <laughs> sure in the canon novels that comes up. I'm trying to think of... Don't quote me on this. I think it might be in the Luke Skywalker novel written by Kevin Hearns where that comes up. But again, my, my memories are fuzzy. Is that new canon? or? Yeah, it's a new canon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Like I, I'm pretty sure it is a known thing that Jedi are celibate. Okay. So um, moving on from like force powers, unless there's any other particular things you want to talk about there. Um, I think we've already covered like probably quite a bit of this kind of thing, but this was just sort of the last thing of um, maybe, maybe the humor aspect is the one thing we didn't cover quite as much um, or, or did we, I don't even remember at this point, what did we talk about two hours ago? Um, but really? like, <laughs> so, so for me personally, like I like the humor for the most part. Um, but I think like, again, coming out of like my first viewing, and again, this might've been a conversation with you, Dom, about like, just saying like, like there was maybe just like one too many gags. Like there was just like, I don't know, like, like the stuff with Poe I'm fine with at the beginning. And like the, the, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, was fine. The porgs were fine. Um, everything's fine. How are you doing? Um, but I think the one, the one thing that, that after three viewings, I kind of came away with like the one, the one gag or, or maybe the couple of gags that I really didn't like was with the, I don't know what to call it, like the caretaker nuns on Octo. And, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I say that is because I feel like it's a very jarring 
dissonance with the message that Rose brings up on Canto Bite about look at look behind the scenes and look at like the help, so to speak. Like look at the people who are doing the work. And I feel like it's almost it's very disrespectful the way they treat these nun caretaker like you know oh we're you know carrying this thing up this huge hill to like take care of luke and ray and like it's sort of like tossed away as like a gag that like ray chops off the rock with her lightsaber and like knocks the cart out of the hand and stuff i mean maybe i'm reading too much into that or whatever but i i do feel like like there was just one or two gags on on the whole and like if i were to pick ones that had to be taken out like those would have been it um in which case do you even need those characters which brings up a whole other question but that's a really fair point and i think like maybe there should have been a scene where ray like apologizes or or turns out you know goes try to try to help those aliens which are i think they're lianas or something i think there's your name there was a scene that was deleted and this is mentioned in the art of the last jedi book um remember in the movie luke teaches Luke says he's going to teach Ray three lessons, three, but we only get two. So the third lesson is actually going to maybe touch upon that a bit, where um, Luke is um, Luke is going to say something like, "Oh, there's a fire in their village. You have to go save them." And Ray's running to try to save them, and then it turns out they're having a big bonfire party, and Luke has a chuckle over it, and it's supposed to be a lesson about. I think it's supposed to be a lesson in how. Like you're not supposed to assume that everybody needs to you to save them all the time or something. And it's kind of also a bit of a joke on her, and she gets upset about it. But so I wonder if there was supposed to be a moment though, there where Ray is supposed to connect a bit more with the, those aliens, and you know to, to have more of a personal relationship with them rather than just treating them as a gag. But you know, but I think I think I think that's definitely a fair point about how like, it kind of seems at odds with the the Rose message in the movie. Yeah, for me, um, I I thought the same thing, especially because I think this movie is really heavy on the message of um, one of the biggest things um, is listening to creatures and listening to animals and listening to outsiders, um, other other people from yourself. Um, and so the fact that these the caretakers were this sort of gag, and I mean, I think. And it's, it goes beyond this film too. Is you know you listen to the the people of the planet that you're on. Um, you listen to the the natives. Um, I think. Um, and beyond that, the one thing I would just take out entirely <laughs> from probably from both films is a uh, Maz. I just love mm. those. Just, I, everything with her. That's her name, right? Maz. Yeah, Maz Kanata. Just I thought it was. Just, I just thought it was clumsy and awkward and just not funny at all. And it didn't even make sense that she would be on a phone call and also like dealing with this sort of in the middle of a fight. And yeah, I don't know. It was supposed to be. Like <laughs> yeah. And her castle just got blown up like five mm -hmm. minutes ago. Why is so she answering the phone call? Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, and she's in the middle of this other. Just, I mean, it just, that, yeah, you're right. That was like. You know, I think somebody on one of the, the Rebel Force Radio podcasts said, you know, if you have a cool character, but nothing for the cool character to do, don't put her in the scene. Yeah. It's going to make your thought, character less cool. 
Exactly. And I thought it was really neat. It was like this moment of Poe being like, Maz, is there any way we can do this without your help? It like, and she'd be like, no, this is the only way. It was very like, no, guys, this is, they're going to have to go to a canto bite. Like, to the audience, or just was like, yeah. Even more well, so, and this kind of pissed me off. If you need somebody from the sleazy underworld on a casino planet, who do you call? You call Lando Calrissian. Why wasn't he in this movie? Ryan Johnson said several times, there's no place for Lando in the story. And they go to a casino planet. How that, that, that should have been Lando on the phone call. Just have a short cameo with Billy D. Williams. Really? And hey, hey, Lando, we need a code breaker. Oh, yeah, I go to this casino planet all the time. You can find somebody there. Oh it, that that would have made more so- sense than Mas Kanata. Or, or how about I give you his phone number and you can just call him? Yeah. <laughs> or that too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the other thing with Maz is like, how does she and Poe know each other? Like, well, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, Finn is more a believable connection there. And maybe well, that's I, I mean, she didn't really like Finn, though. There was a yeah. deleted scene, and I think this is in the novelization, where Maz Kanata was actually supposed to have gone back to Resistance Space briefly with Leia and the rest of them, okay. and then left. So, in theory, they could have met, but yeah, it's still, it's still very forced. It, it, there were, Lando would have been a much better option. Now, did you read, is the novel, novelization, I mean, that's not out until March. I'm sorry, I meant the last, the, the Force Awakens novelization. Oh, the Force Awakens, okay, sorry. Yeah. I choked my way through that, but I was, yeah. Yes, I'm not a big fan of Dean Foster's writing, no, but anyway. Better on audiobook. Not bad, I read it. Okay. Well, I, I mean. That Poe meets Ray in that book, and it turns out that Poe doesn't meet Ray until the end of this movie, so. I don't know if that book yeah. is even canon anymore. I, I don't think the novelizations are canon, though. Oh, yeah, they are. They were supposed to be, unless they conflict with the movies, in which case they aren't. And, you know, obviously Poe oh. meeting Ray didn't happen in The Force Awakens, so. That's so backward. And uh, really. You be canon, you know, but if you say something we don't like, then you're not. But, kind of, but yeah. that's how it was with the EU. Like, it was, yeah. like, and they had, like, tiers of canonicity yeah. and like all of it like so anyway like we don't know to need to go down that road we're we're i mean so we're coming up on uh, 11 o'clock at least for those of us okay. in the east um a- any like final things that like i don't want to cut it short um and we're not because it's been a while but um <laughs> a- any any other things that like at least big points thoughts uh that we haven't covered yet i mean i'm sure i'm sure all of us could spend a lot of time sitting around talking about this but um anything major that that someone really wanted to bring up that we didn't cover well i'll give a parting prediction um i predict that uh following the similarities between uh kylo ren and severus snape's characters (laughs) that i enjoyed observing in the force awakens that uh that we're going to end with some kind of a redemptive, sacrificial, romantic, love-based um, Kylo Ren demise uh, because he has sort of fallen for Ray and uh, in, in, in true Severus Snape and Lily Evans Potter fashion, he's going to meet his end to to save Ray. So there's my there's my prediction right there. Oh yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more 
love, of course, that's what Rose tells Finn, right? Is we're gonna we're gonna win by saving what we love, not fighting what we hate. Um, one major thing, and I touched on this a little bit, but and I want to. I started writing this as like a blog post, but then just never did because I don't have the novelization and I can't have quotes, and that kills me. Um, is I think that this film pays a lot of attention to animals in a really unique way, um, and a lot of attention to natural environment versus man-built or military order and that sort of things. Um, it's one of the biggest messages um, that we see from, you know, the porgs and Chewie eating a porg and then deciding not to eat a porg. Of course, I don't eat animals, so I, I'm very biased, but I think Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, listening to animals, listening to the listening to porgs, um, seeing where green milk comes from, where blue milk comes from, um, you know, it's this moment of wonder that Ray looks at that animal and then in disgust and then kind of like, oh, I shouldn't be looking at this very intimate uh, use of animal, um, you know, listening to the crystal foxes, whatever their actual name is, um, and all this sort of the natural environment of where Luke and, Le Luke and Ray are versus where Kylo is. So I think, I think that that's a really, and of course the freedom of the, um, of the characters, the, the creatures on uh, Canto Bite. It's listening to them and freeing them and um, paying attention to people who don't have a voice um, is an extremely important message in this film. And I think that we'll see more of that. I hope we see more of that. So my prediction slash fantasy for episode nine is actually related to like my big question about the sequel trilogy, which is why do we have a sequel trilogy? Yes, I know Disney bought, bought Star Lucasfilm. I know the, the external context, but in terms of the story, like why Return of the Jedi seemed like a pretty clear victory for the Rebels and the sequel trilogy overturns that. And it's not clear to me yet in the story why that happened, why that needed to be the case, why we need to see this at all. And I think The Last Jedi provided potentially a really interesting answer, which is that the victory in Return of the Jedi was superficial. It was simply killing the, the head of the snake. It was killing the, destroying the old political institutions, possibly setting up a new republic, but not really leading a societal transformation. You know, you, people's lives didn't get better. You still have slavery on Canto Bight. You still have poverty. You still have war profiteering. You, ha you still have instability. and I think it'd be really interesting if somehow, and I know, especially J.J. Abrams directing, I know there's not gonna be like a lot of world building and discussion of politics, and there shouldn't be, but it'd be really interesting if they conveyed that this time, if the good guys win, as they probably will, you know, they're the good guys win in these movies, this time it leads to something bigger and deeper and longer lasting and people's lives get better. And maybe, maybe that even means like, your average person gets involved in the rebellion. This is no longer a contest between elites, like the force wielding elites. Maybe it's like, you know, stable boy in Canto Bite um, joins the fight, or like your random person on your random planet joins the fight, and they get rid of slavery. Like so, it's, it's like maybe maybe because it's a deeper societal transformation, that's why the sequel trilogy needed to exist because it needed to, you know, and this needed to be a real longer lasting victory. So if they can do something like that. I think that would be really interesting. I don't know how you pull that off in one movie. You know, good luck, J.J. Abrams. But um, that I think that would really make this whole nine-episode story resonate 
I think they've definitely laid the, the groundwork for that, though I think you're really um, spot on because I think that this movie, another thing that it does, is it totally dismantles the idea of legends and, and the hero. And instead mm-hmm. of big heroic moments, we're, you know, are, we're pointed to smaller, smaller actions and choices um, that are based off of love or hope or, um, you know, not these grand heroic gestures. Um, of course, there's plenty of those as well. But I think it's starting to move in that direction and, and go away from like, you know, big elites to the ordinary person and, and their involvement on a very personal um, level with the people they interact with every day. Well, I think Rose seems like the articulation of that concept, both in her background as a character, but also the way that she expresses those themes that Kelly just said too. Um, I don't have a prediction per se. I have a question, which is, it seems to me like, you know, the first, you know, uh, Force Awakens was very much built around Han as the most, you know, prominent of the old characters returning. This one obviously spends a lot of time with Luke. It seems to me that the next movie was supposed to be the Leia movie. Um, my question is how they do that without Leia, um, without just recreating her digitally, which please no, God, they're not going to. They've already said they, they they have to find another way. Um, so that's kind of my prediction slash question is that they'll still at least attempt to make it about her, but without Carrie Fisher. Okay. My, well, based on that, my prediction is that they're going to start with Leia's funeral. Like that's going to be the opening. Leia's gone and the resistance is flailing and who's going to step into leadership. I mean, they're clearly priming Poe for that, right? But that's my prediction for where they start anyway. Um, yeah. Dave, any final thoughts? I'm, I'm going to go superficial. I'm looking forward to awesome lightsaber duels and lots of spaceship battles. <laughs> That'll probably happen. <laughs> Guaranteed. With a big explosion at the end. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you, everyone um, in our audience, for joining us tonight. I saw we lost a couple people, but we still got 25 strong. So looks like we're growing our second uh, movie club uh, panel in. And uh, thank you all for joining. If you've um, signed up, which you all clearly have, um, you'll get reminders about our next ones. And, and we'll be posting the um, full schedule soon. Again, we have in February, um, uh, we have our Hitchhiker's Guide uh, discussion. Uh, with February 22nd, right? I, I mm-hmm. go back and look at my slide here again uh, to make sure I'm getting that right. And, uh, and then after that, A Wrinkle in Time. So we'll see everyone then. Um, back next week at around this time, uh, Corey will be talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide for his final uh, class on that. And uh, we'll see you all then. And thank you again to all our panelists for joining. And uh, I'm sure the conversation will continue in blog posts and Twitter and all of the usual places. So look forward to uh, seeing that. Thank you. And, and uh, thank you. may the force be with you. And also with you. Also with your spirit. <laughs> 
The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.